Welcome back to Sweatin' Bullets, a fantasy football podcast. I am your host, DFB Encounter. With me, as always, is no longer a jumbled mess of numbers. We now have a real-life person with a real-life Twitter handle, Jacob Sanderson, at Jacob Sanderson. It's very easy to remember. Nobody will forget this forever. Jacob, tell us about why you decided to go away from the worst Twitter handle on fantasy football Twitter to something that is completely unoriginal and is simply your name. Yeah, Akash is now the only jumbled bunch of letters uh, in your orbit, right? So we still have YZR, but RTDB is no more. Uh, For those that don't recall, which would be, I imagine, about 95% of the people that follow me, (laughs) when I first came onto Fantasy Twitter... Uh, my, I didn't initially want to put my name on the account because I didn't know like what I'd be doing. I didn't know if necessarily people would find my tweets. I mean, yes, they have. I just learned to be okay with that. Uh, and so originally I was just RTDB and my profile image was just a zoom in photo of the run the damn ball hat on Quentin Nelson's head. Uh, and that was just my alter ego. I was just the hat. And then eventually when I got to 1,000 followers, I decided, okay, I'll change it off the cartoon face that you see now, which has been my my profile photo ever since with the little run the damn ball app beside me. And of course, uh, that was the acronym for my former Twitter handle, FF underscore RTDB, FF underscore run the damn ball. Uh, basically, I just decided on that. I, I've been a Colts fan my whole life, and I've always been a pretty big fan of throwing the ball. Uh, I've been a pretty big fan of, you know, trying to do things in an analytically forward thinking way, throwing on early downs, play action, you and Jefferson have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. I, I think out of fear, I'm a fearful person. I, I live in fear. So I, I look at the analytics. Uh, anyhow. And then I always thought it was very ironic that like the team that I had grown up rooting for as being like the Peyton Manning, chuck the ball all the, over the field team had now, you know, established this identity of their quarterback, Jacoby Brissett being a total beta wearing a run the down ball hat, promoting his being a human turnstile, turning to hand the ball off to Marlon Mack. And so anyway, I was this like kind of self-owned Twitter handle. And I decided that, you know, Drew had been making fun of me relentlessly for this absurd Twitter handle that I had. And I've been thinking about changing it for a while anyway, to be honest. And then when they fired Francis Reich, uh, I decided, all right, you know what? The run the damn ball era is now officially over. You know, Ballard hopefully will be soon to follow. Uh, and I'm going to just be Jacob Sanderson. So that's that's where we're at. Uh, and I thought that that was the end of, like, the Colts breaking news. You know, I thought that it was going to be first breaking news. Frank Reich fired. Second breaking news, Jacob Sanderson has changed his Twitter handle. And I thought that would be it. I thought they would just, you know, say, like, okay, Gus Bradley's our interim head coach or Bubba Ventrone's our interim head coach or just, like, some nondescript assistant, John Fox, perhaps. Uh, they did not They did not do that. The news cycle continued. Uh, and and is, is that where we should dig in? Should we begin with with the Colts, uh, the Colts calamity? Uh, I asked a poll question. I said, do, you, do people only want fantasy talk or do you want me to tilt about the Colts? And the people said decisively they want me to tilt about the Colts. So I, I can't not give the people what they want. It's, it's the right thing to do. When you ask the masses and they answer, you simply must give the people what they want. It's the right thing to do. 66.5% of the world wow. wants us to talk about the culture right now. Yeah. I can only presume everyone in the world has voted. And uh, that's yeah. going to be somewhere people. like around 4 billion people or so. Can't yeah. wait to hear what you have to say about the Indianapolis Colts calamity, as you so eloquently put it. Okay. So well, I want to start. I want to start at the 
at the beginning, right? I want to start at the very beginning. Very good place to start, as Maria once said. Indianapolis Colts are an organization in this era, and it is the Christopher Ballard era that was grounded on the wrong principles, and they ultimately got the results that they deserve for being grounded on those principles. Chris Ballard took over as a general manager in 2017, and his first draft, his first round pick was Malik Hooker, who looked as though, frankly, he was going to be a star in the NFL until multiple injuries essentially eradicated that from happening. Second round pick was Quincy Wilson, who was a total boss cornerback. Essentially, what people, I think, remember is his first draft, or at least when Chris Ballard, the draft guru, draft god, and hashtag and Ballard we trust, really started to come into force was the 2018 draft, okay? And the 2018 draft really was the high watermark of the Chris Ballard era. And quite frankly, he's been coasting off of the 2018 draft ever since in terms of his reputation. In that draft, he made a trade. They already had Andrew Luck, who was coming back off of a season that he had missed. And so they had struggled to a 4-12 and record, but they already had their franchise quarterback in place. And so he made a very wise decision to trade out of the number three pick with the New York Jets so they could select Quentin Nelson, the number six pick. They also ended up with two early seconds, one from the Jets and one of their own, in which they round up selecting Braden Smith, who became their right tackle, still is their right tackle, and of course, Darius, a.k.a. Shaquille, a.k.a. Maniac Leonard, who became almost immediately one of the best linebackers in the NFL. That really was like Chris Ballard's legend had already grown from that point. It was like, what did he do? Number one, he traded back. Okay. It certainly helped him out that Sam Darnold turned out to be a total pile of shit um, because it made the trade back look even better. He gets Quinn Nelson, who let's be honest, everybody would have fucking taken Quinn Nelson at that spot. He didn't do anything incredible. Everybody was like, you have to take Quinn Nelson as soon as all the top quarterbacks are off the board. And the Giants were like, no, we're taking a running back. And then Ballard did the sensible thing, which is to take the highest ranked player on the board. And then he hits big on Darius Leonard. Which, I mean, credit to him, like no one on earth was taking Darius Leonard uh, in the early second round. He was a linebacker from South Carolina State. I don't even know. I think that's a Div 2 school. It's not even an FCS school as far as I'm concerned. It might be an FCS school. Uh, And he hit on that. Obviously, he hit out of the park. But what people, I think, fail to realize is there was already seeds in that draft class that this was a guy who might actually be legitimately good at evaluating talent or might've just gotten lucky or maybe a little bit of both, but he didn't actually understand at the macro level what was necessary. He invested these picks into one right tackle in Braden Smith, which is fantastic. Otherwise he invested all these early picks into an interior defensive lineman in Tyquan Lewis, a guard on interior offensive lineman in Quentin Nelson, an off ball linebacker in Darius Leonard, ultimately wound up taking a running back in Naheem Hines in the fourth round. And that really shaped what he went on to do for the rest of his tenure as general manager. He winds up trading away a first round pick for an interior defensive lineman and DeForest Buckner. He winds up taking Jonathan Taylor at the top of the second round, trading up for Jonathan Taylor as a running back in the top of the second round. He ends up spending further day two picks on off-ball linebacker Bobby Okereke. He ends up spending another pick on EJ Speed, another off-ball linebacker. He winds up continually taking wide receivers that are old, that are combine warriors, that don't have production. And all of a sudden, the emperor starts to wear less and less and less clothes the further you get away from the 2018 draft. I think that 
the most charitable view of the Chris Ballard tenure as GM is that he took over a team that already had the franchise cornerstone pieces in place in Andrew Luck as their quarterback, in Anthony Costanzo as their left tackle. And he continued to build a roster that would fill in on the margins because the margins are necessary for a Super Bowl contender. And then he didn't ever have the opportunity to adjust when winning at the margins was no longer necessary. And when he needed to reset the team to actually go back and find those cornerstones because all of a sudden Locke wasn't there, Costanzo wasn't there, and you had a team all of a sudden with elite, expensive, paid running backs, an interior offensive lineman, an interior defensive lineman, and off-ball linebackers without any wide receivers, tackles, or a quarterback. And ultimately, that is why this team met its inevitable end where it is now a 3-5-1 team that put up under 150 yards of offense against the New England Patriots. What, what say you on Christopher Ballard before I get into ev- all of the hilarity that transpired after this Frank Reich thing? And lost in that, by the way, is that I think Frank Reich was a good coach and that he got fired for other people's mistakes. Yeah, I think like the Chris Ballard thing is, I don't know, it, like he, I think he, he rightfully earned like the genius t- label in 2018. He, he, he basically played it perfectly. Like he made yeah. the right picks. He traded back when he should have. And then since then, it's just been a colossal nightmare of awfulness. And, uh, you know, kind of proving like the broken clock is correct twice a day. Uh, like, so, so, like, obviously my process, I have, I have a process where I grade players. And Chris Ballard keeps continually picking players that I don't even, like, I'm not saying, like, he's picking players that, are terrible at the skill positions because Jonathan Taylor was a very good player, but he was certainly not generational. We know that definitively at this point, I would say. And he's, he's very, very good. He's probably one of the best running backs in football and that's fine, but it doesn't really matter. And trading up for him when you still had other running backs available, like I know the other guys got hurt and their careers have been derailed, but JK Dobbins was still available and Cam Akers were still available and they weren't, materially worse than Jonathan Taylor as a prospect. Sure, Jonathan Taylor is maybe a little bit better, uh, but it wasn't like this huge chasm where it's like, oh my God, we need to trade up and get Taylor because we're going to be stuck with these other guys. They were still good prospects. And then his wide receiver picks have been Paris Gamble, who I've graded as a bust and has since busted. Michael Pittman Jr., who I actually graded as a bust and is pretty good. He's an NFL player, like at the very, very worst. Good NFL player. What's that? He's a good if he's if he is one of your starting wide receivers, he is part of the solution to a very good wide receiver room. Yeah. My my argument has been that if he is your number one wide receiver, you're probably batting below average at the number one wide receiver chair. That's been my issue with Pittman, where I don't think he's actually that elite. But if he's your number two, you're love and life. And if you have a co-number one with him, then you're you're also love and life. Yeah, I think he'd be best suited to a one A, one B situation than yeah. like a he's probably better than like a pure wide receiver too but he's probably also I not think he's, I, th- I think he's like a i think he's like like a slightly worse t higgins yeah where yeah, like when t say. higgins is your number two wide receiver you have one of the best wide receiver twos in the entire league yeah. and if t higgins well, is your number one wide receiver then you're like okay yeah so but you better have a good number two in that case right if you only have a higgins or you only have a Pittman, and then your second best wide receiver is paris campbell then, then you're up a creek 
Yeah. <laughs> so that, then he picks Alec Pierce, who I also didn't like. So he picked three wide receivers in the second round in four years, mm-hmm. of which I gave all three players a bust grade. And that is just infuriating to see somebody squandering assets like this that has been hailed a genius. Like, I remember, I, I'm quite certain it was him I heard talking on a podcast at one point, or maybe it was just an interview, I can't remember, talking about how to spot outliers. And I thought mm-hmm. it was really fascinating because he was talking about, you know, on day three, the guys that actually end up being good usually are from small schools. They're usually, you know, there's some deficiency with them mm-hmm. that that doesn't truly matter, but gives people pause and all this stuff. I was like, man, like this guy's pretty smart. Like that, that's the kind of thing that we would look at. And then he goes out and drafts non-producer after non-producer after non-producer. And it's like, okay, like you, you could find you, you, you put together this like process of identifying day three players that might give you something. And then you just completely botch the players that you should draft when you should draft good players. Like, ugh. anyways, then yeah, it obviously all fell apart and that's completely on him. And like the, the quarterback thing, I, you know, I, I'll continually have been on Twitter arguing with people year over year over year back to the Josh Rosen year when, or the Kyler Murray year, you yeah. know, like you need to just punt Josh Rosen because he right. isn't the answer. If you don't have a quarterback, you don't have anything. I don't care what else you have. You need to get a quarterback. And Chris Ballard has continually punted the quarterback position on these old retreads and has gotten absolutely nowhere. He's like, he's trying to get lucky and go eight and eight. Like it, it's in, it's infuriating to see someone hailed as a genius and then playing just like the worst macro game you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, isn't it almost fitting that the week that this era of Indianapolis Colts football like collapses in on itself entirely is the same week that Justin Fields has his best NFL game? Because they could have made that trade. They picked right beside the Chicago Bears in that draft. Yeah, They traded their first-round pick uh, plus for Carson Wentz. They could have traded that first-round pick, which uh, – or well, they traded – sorry, they traded their next year's first-round pick, which the Bears also included. They kept their first-round pick. They could have traded their first-round pick, which became Quiddy Pay, who looks like a good player, although not a, a massive difference-making player. Although I'll give it to Chris Ballard, one of the few picks that he made that was actually a premium position, so I'll give him that. He is an edge <laughs> rusher and looks like a good one. Um Still not as good of a quarterback. So you could have traded Quiddy Pay, and you could have traded the first that they moved for Carson Wentz uh, and the additional picks that they moved for Carson Wentz. And they could have gotten Justin Fields, right? And they decided instead to go with Carson Wentz. To be fair, Frank Reich, by all accounts, was the one leading the charge on the Carson Wentz trade. If there is something that in his tenure that is squarely his fault, it is probably pushing for the Carson Wentz trade. I think as an actual coach, he's been fine. Not great enough that I think he could survive an eventual GM firing, but fine. But ultimately, Chris Ballard has bet most notably and most confidently and ultimately most erroneously on himself because he has decided that his bets are the ones that will work, right? He will take the guys that he wants. He started off as a trade back guy. He's a fake trade back guy. He started, he later would trade up. He would trade back. He's traded picks away for, for veterans. He's done all sorts of things. Ultimately, what he has bet on more than anything else is himself. He's bet on, I will select the right players 
such that it doesn't matter what position they play. I don't need to play probabilities. I don't need to care about player value. I'm just going to pick the best players because I'm Chris Ballard and I know who the best players are and I'm going to pick them. I don't need to take a young rookie quarterback. I could take whatever retread quarterback because I'm going to build a team that's so good. This quarterback that was bad on this other team last year, he'll be good on my team because I'm Chris Ballard. This is Chris Ballard's team. This is Chris Ballard's players. These other players that were bad, they'll be good with the Chris Ballard team. And ultimately, this type of false confidence has eventually caved in on itself where you look at the other major failing that was once hailed as a positive of Chris Ballard's career, which is Chris Ballard always said, I won't be spending up in free agency. I'm not going to spend on free agency. I don't want bad contracts on my team. And when that happened, it was such a fresh breath of fresh air for Colts fans because Brian Grigson, who to be clear, was a significantly worse general manager than Chris Ballard. Um, (laughs) No redeeming qualities. Uh, He spent all the time in free agency. He always wanted to win the offseason by spending too much for mediocre players in free agency. And when Chris Ballard was like, I'm not going to do that, Colts fans were like, oh my God, yes. Finally, someone who will not toss a ridiculous bag at Gosder Sherless and Donnie Avery. And... The funny little thing that happened, of course, with Chris Ballard is that he held to his word. He didn't spend outrageously in free agency on other teams' players. Instead, he spent outrageously on extending his own players, and in particular, extending his own players that played unimportant positions. And almost like, you know, a it's like Icarus flying too close to the sun in that he drafted such good players like Darius Leonard, and Quentin Nelson, and Braden Smith, and if he survives long enough in the job of GM, eventually Jonathan Taylor, that he drafted such good players in such unimportant positions. And because he's always focused on just getting good players and not worrying about the value, he then has to extend all of the good players that he drafted at all the positions that don't matter, and you end up with a cap sheet full of money devoted to positions that don't matter that much. And then what happens is what happens when the players are no longer elite? And now they cost all the money. And all of the 2018 draft studs, Darius Leonard, Braden Smith, Quentin Nelson, that used to be, oh my God, we have all of these all pros and they're all in the rookie contracts. What a genius. We didn't spend up on free agents. Now they're mediocre average players on massive contracts. And we don't have any money to spend on the positions that do matter. Chris Ballard had the audacity in his interview to to blame the media for the bad offensive line. He said, you guys have been kicking my ass about drafting wide receivers. And now we're underperforming on the offensive line. There are 28 NFL teams that pay less for their offensive line than Chris Ballard pays for his offensive line. Every single player on the offensive line that the Colts have was either drafted by him or extended by him or signed by him. He decided that when Anthony Costanza, their left tackle, the most important position on the offensive line retired after the 2020 season, that he would replace him with Eric Fisher, a 30-year-old off a of torn Achilles, veteran minimum type contracts and Julian Davenport and Sam TV, a longtime swing tackle backup and Matt Pryor, and eventually a third rounder out of the Mac in Bernard Raymond. And unsurprisingly, none of those were as good as Anthony Costanzo because they no longer had the picks and they didn't have the cap space to go and attract people that would pillar that. And shockingly, having a bunch of highly paid guards and right tackles does not an elite offensive line make. So it is not the media's fault. It's Chris Ballard's hubris's fault for overpaying players in positions that don't matter to not have the resources to spend on positions that do matter. And there's no way out. He's, ca- he's caved himself in. There's no way out. 
This team no longer has good players. This team has expensive, mediocre players. They're just ones that we signed off of our own roster instead of somebody else's. Yeah, and the the really frustrating thing about that quote about the media was kicking his ass about the wide receiver room is like, you don't have to draft three wide receivers in the second round in four years if you just picked a decent wide receiver like one or two of those years. You could also sign, if you didn't blow all your money on mediocre yeah. players that could have gotten Amari Cooper for a fifth. You probably could have <laughs> paid, you know, something. Yeah, you could have traded for Amari Cooper for a fifth round pick. You could have signed some of these wide receivers. Like a Juju Smith Schuster would be completely fine in that offense. Yeah. Like, and he was basically free as far as I can tell. Like, yeah. there's been tons of, of wide receiver options on the free agent market that are adequate NFL players. You don't need to pay second round picks to draft ones that you hope are adequate second round players or adequate NFL players. So don't be mad at the media because you blew your picks on the wrong players. God. Yeah. Well, it, like if he if he had drafted if he had good process and drafted a bunch of good wide receivers and it just didn't work out, sure. I would I would say, hey, you know what? You made the right swing and it and you missed. It happens. But you picked bad ones to begin with. You took bad swings, man. Anyways, I, I don't know. Let's talk about Jeff Saturday. Can we talk yeah, about Jeff Let's get into the main thing. Cause I yeah, I wanted to talk about Ballard. Ballard is still employed. And look. When I saw the first news about Frank Reich, I thought it'd be boring. I was like, okay, they'll like, I don't know, they'll probably like promote John Fox or whatever. Some yeah. will play like weekend at Bernie's with the interim coach um, for the next eight weeks, get through the season. Then they're going to fire Ballard and then they're going to do a whole coach oh. search for the new GM and Actually, then they'll bring in a new coach. Let me, let me go back a second because one thing that really did annoy me with this whole scenario is was it two weeks ago they fired the offensive coordinator? Yeah. Was that after they put in Sam Ellinger? Actually, well, yes. It's been a, it's been every week. There's been a new change. So two weeks ago, they benched Matt Ryan. The next week, they fired Marcus Brady. And then right. this week, they fired Frank Reich. So, like, listen, because Frank, because Jim Irsay is a little toddler who's having a hissy fit, and so every week he like breaks another bowl, right? He just like he's just yeah. like ah, <laughs> and he breaks something it's, else. It's like Donald Trump throwing his plate of ketchup against the wall, like it's yeah. it's incredible. But it's like, if you're going to go in and mandate that you can no longer play Matt Ryan, and then the offense sucks with Sam Ellinger, who, by the way, is not a good quarterback, of course the offense was going to suck. Why didn't you just fire those guys in the first place? And then you fire the offensive coordinator, and then you're like, oh, wait, Sam Ellinger still sucks? Or no, wait, the offense still sucks. It's it's not Sam Ellinger's fault. It's definitely the head coach's fault now. Now we're going to fire him. It's just like, what are you – like? If you didn't like the head coach and the offensive coordinator anymore, fire them all and just be done with it. Why are you knocking one off every week after taking the starting quarterback out of the lineup? It's just, it's toddler behavior. You're completely right. That's exactly what it is. The thing that irks me with this is that like, so I get that Frank Wright probably needed to be fired in the sense that I think Chris Ballard needed to be fired. And I don't think that Frank Wright's been such an exceptional coach that it's like, we need to get a new GM and then we need to retain Frank Reich. Like, I think that would have been absurd. I think that we just need clearly like this era of Colts football has not succeeded. It's reached its conclusion. They need to clean house and they need to bring in a new era. And that means a new GM and a new coach. I get it. That being said of the people responsible for this, I feel like Frank Reich is a, the least responsible for it being this bad and B the most likely to succeed elsewhere. And I think that essentially gaslighting Frank Reich, where it's like, we're for sure keep like he comes out in the press conference. He's like, of course we're keeping Chris Ballard. Um, he's a proven winner. Anybody who says otherwise is not even looking at the facts. He has a losing record as a GM, by the way. So like whatever. 
And then he's like, he's comparing him to, he's comparing him to Michael Jordan. He's like, how many shots did Michael Jordan miss? You know, it's like, okay. Right. And then they bring in Saturday. It's like acting like this is all going to get fixed when you get rid of Reich, who is like clearly not the problem is either deranged or you're just putting it on him because you're still bitter that he wanted to to bring in Carson Wentz. Like it's, it's strange to me. Um, That being said, the Saturday hiring in and of itself is absurd. And like, I do it. I don't feel bad for Saturday in the sense like Saturday should have had the self-awareness to know that if he accepted this opportunity, that people would be extremely confused because he has no head coaching experience or coaching experience at all outside of high school. He's never coached. Let's not get carried away. He does have coaching experience. I looked it up because I wanted to know specifically how in high school. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he he coached at Hebron Christian Academy, (laughs) which is a, a famous school in Georgia. Famous. They steamroll the competition every year. His he he's coached for three years there, and has just an impressive history, uh, a, a shelf full of trophies from his time at Hebron Christian Academy. In total, his teams went twenty and sixteen, which obviously makes him qualified to coach an NFL team. I would say that if there was one area of you know anything where a coaching position probably really truly does matter. It's probably in the high school ranks where you have a tremendous impact on growth of players and to go 20 and 16 is just not overly inspiring. Like if, if I, if my son or daughter was a football prodigy and I'm trying to figure out where I want my son or daughter to play football, I would be willing to move to the place where the, the hall of fame center is coaching, and this guy still won 20 and 16 in three years. Like, how does that even happen? I, I, it just doesn't even make sense. Like, of all the things. All yeah, the things. Je- yeah, Jeff Day of the Week um, is <laughs> it's just like, I mean, look, Jeff like, Saturday. Like, hold on. Why we should nickname him something worse than Saturday, like Monday. He should be Jeff Monday because this is going to be awful. <laughs> well, this is what I said, right? It's like, very ironic. What, what day do does high school football play in, in the United States? I'm assuming on Friday. I don't know. Yeah, they, they play on Fridays. Yeah, you watch Friday Night Lights, right? No, I and, didn't because okay. I don't really watch TV. Okay, well, they play on Fridays. And then what, what day of the week do, does NFL football usually get played? Sunday. Right. So why is college the only thing that he hasn't coached? <laughs> like his name is Jeff Saturday. He's only coaching versions of football that take place on Fridays and Sundays. He rests on Saturday. It's a day of rest for Jeff Saturday. Clearly that's the issue. No. So the Jeff Saturday, I mean, let's be honest. I have no fucking clue if he's going to be a good coach or not. I would expect he probably, he's probably not because he's never even coached. Like, I mean, it was so funny. They were like, we tried to get him to come and be the offensive line coach a couple of years ago, which like is a thing that makes sense because he was an offensive lineman. And that's generally how you would start your coaching career. Like Kevin mm-hmm. Maway, who, you know, is a, uh, might be Maway, Maway. I'm not, I'm not even hundred percent sure. Hall of fame, offensive lineman, long time, uh, offensive lineman. He's currently an assistant offensive line coach, right? That is the type of role that even extremely, high-profile, incredible football players get. They start off as something like an assistant offensive line coach, right? Like, isn't Reggie Wayne... Right, like I, was, I was, I was going to get to. Cato, Cato, there are other members of the 2006 Super Bowl team on the coaching staff. Cato June, who was their offensive li- or was their outside linebacker on that team, he is currently their assistant linebackers coach. Uh, Reggie Wayne is their wide receivers coach. Jeff Saturday is not a coach <laughs> at any level. Um, 
this was like Jim or say, just like hiring his buddy, which like, if you're the owner, like, I guess you have the right to do, but what, what was so absurd about it is like a, just how transparently it was like Ursay's call. Like they have this whole press conference with him and Ballard in unison and Ballard has to fake it. Like he's so in favor of this. I mean, I guarantee you if we get Chris Ballard on truth serum and they're like, dude, did, did you want Jeff Saturday as your coach? Like, Obviously not dude. Like I, I don't want this goof. Uh, and I mean, the other issue is of course, to me, it's just such a waste of, an opportunity in the sense that like, unlike a lot of people, like I actually don't, I I didn't want them to actually promote Gus Bradley or uh, John Fox. Like to me, who cares, right? It's an interim coach. They should be cleaning house. Um, I actually think that's like serves no purpose to give 67 year old John Fox another eight games to coach in the NFL in the middle of a listless season. Like what, like who cares, right? Like John Fox is probably never going to be head coach again. Like what are we really getting out of that? I would have given it to any number of the assistants that they like, whoever they like on their staff, who potentially has head coaching aspirations one day that gets to have eight games of invaluable experience, be able to put on their resume. I mean, in particular, the stark difference in terms of the qualifications that African-American candidates have needed to put forth to be able to get head coaching vacancies versus uh, non-minority candidates. And they have Ron Miles on staff. They have Cato June on staff. They have Reggie Wayne on staff. Have several other coaches, uh, Ron Miles being the most veteran African-American coach on staff, I would take the opportunity to help give those ex- extremely valuable eight games of coaching experience uh, to one of those coaches. If not them, Baba Ventrone, Scott Milanovic, any one of their other up-and-coming assistants, uh, I think would be invaluable experience for. To me, if you're going outside the organization to a Jeff Saturday, the only way that this makes any form of sense where you're doing that is if you're saying like, actually, I don't think this should be the interim coach. Um and the press conference was very much that vibe. I mean, on one hand, he was saying out of one side of his mouth, you know, we're going to follow the Rooney rule to a T. We're going to do a full search after the other season. On the other hand, it was all about what an incredible hire Jeff Saturday was. We're so excited behind Jeff. He's going to be the guy. Uh, we hope it's more than eight games. I mean, I think an Ursa of mine, th- this is the guy th- that he thinks they found the guy. I hope that it's such a disaster that he reverses course on this. At the same time, he guaranteed that Chris Ballard would be in place, right? And to me, what this reads of is like, Ursay is going to hire his buddy to be coach and he's going to keep on the GM who knows he's on his last legs that he has to agree to everything because Ursay has decided like he actually just wants to run the team. Like yeah, he, he, he no longer wants to put on anybody who has any remaining equity left to actually make decisions over the Colts. He wants to make the decisions over the Colts. Uh, I mean, is that your read on it? Like this is just him deciding like I'm going to be as hands-on as humanly possible as the owner of the team? Oh yeah, for sure. I think one of the interesting things that I've, I've never really spent a lot of time thinking about because it's not really, I don't know what the word is, uh, relevant to me a lot of the times is this like theory, I get not theory, theory is not the right word, but like there's a the, theory you get the, when you look to the West. Well, like, like the whole thing about firing a coach in the middle of the season, like what, what, why did we fire the coach in the middle of the season? What are we trying to do here? Are we trying to change the culture of the team mm. well then we probably should have hired the guy that we think is the long-term answer and if that's jeff saturday then i think they should reevaluate how they came to that conclusion and if that's not jeff saturday then why didn't they hire somebody that they wanted to groom into a more prominent role you know a future offensive coordinator right. or, or whatever like something that's already in place that can be part of the solution long term like i don't know jeff saturday is just such an 
out there hire that just feels like such a tremendous risk to like the credibility of the organization. Right. It's embarrassing. Like, you're, you're just putting, setting yourself up to be a laughing stock in national media, not, not just in Indianapolis. This is national media I mean, type. I mean, like Larry, like Mike Garofolo, who like, right. When we're talking about Schefter and Ian Rappaport and stuff like these guys and Mike Garofolo and Tom Pelissero and like all of these national insiders, right? Like, all of these guys, they tweet out the most like vanilla takes all the time, right? Because they're, they're never going to show up a, a person who's in a position of authority because they rely on these people as sources. They rely on good relationships with organizations. So like they always frame everything in either like a very neutral light or a positive light, like almost to, to a laughable extent sometimes. I mean, here, here's the string of tweets from Mike Garofalo, uh yesterday. He says, Ursa is rolling now. We don't build rockets to go to Mars. It's a very simple job we do. Ursay says he's glad Saturday doesn't have NFL coaching experience because those guys have fear and often lean on analytics. He doesn't have that fear. Uh, we'll get back to that quote. Then he says, next thread, we had the conversation and it escalated quickly, Jeff Saturday, but more like Ron Burgundy. <laughs> he then says, Chris Ballard says that they've hired or tried to hire Jeff Saturday twice before as an online coach, which of course would be something that would make sense. <laughs> This next tweet, Ursay now saying Michael Jordan missed many shots, which might be some kind of Michael Scott, Wayne Gretzky motivational thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> then Ursay on passing over his entire coaching staff for Saturday. Because he's a better fit, he's the best man for the job. There's no question about it in my mind, and I've been around a long time. Compares it to hiring Bruce Arians. A note on that, Arians at the time had been a head coach in college in the NFL almost or and had almost 40 years of coaching experience between college and the nfl saturday has well none of that all right that was fun and crazy gonna go watch football i mean this is like a national reporter who relies on sources like actively making fun of the owner and nfl team like that's that's an embarrassing look like just just shooting shots it's uh it's bad it's not going to help them land a, a real established coach. But I think that that's not Jim Irsay's aim. Like, I don't think that he cares about hiring someone with gravitas. I think he wants to hire people that no longer have the gravitas to do anything that he doesn't want to do, which is very bad because the last thing that any professional sports team wants is an owner who knows nothing about uh, running a football organization, uh, making all the decisions for their football organization and dictating who to draft and who to trade for and who to start. And that's, that's bad. You don't want your owner doing that. So it's, it's bad. Um, do have to touch on the, the analytics quote, because I mean, that's kind of what we do here. An incredible quote. I mean, he, he says, it says experience. No, we don't want anybody with experience because if you have experience, you have fear. And if you have fear, then you'll lean into the analytics, right? He, on one hand, we have people with experience. And on the other hand, we have people who will listen to analytics. And that's the trade-off, right? You can either have people who make informed decision-making with numbers, or you can have people who have no idea what they're doing and have never done it. The threat of, of making informed decisions with numbers is so high that we're willing to forego qualifications entirely just to avoid the possibility that someone might use numbers. Um, that's a take. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> as soon as that quote came out, I thought, um, and I, maybe 
I might have this backwards, but I think of this tweet from Cooper FB or Coops FB at oh, yeah. Coops FB. His name's Cooper Adams. He's probably one of the smartest analysts on football. Yeah. And he says, and I quote, this is a direct quote from Cooper. The greatest trick the devil, devil ever pulled was convincing football guys that punting was high T. Mm. Punting is playing scared and analytics does not say to punt. So like this whole premise of Jim Rose saying that, you know, these coaches are too afraid. So they play by the analytics is just mind boggling to me. I don't even understand what decision making was happening behind closed doors that led him to believe that they were playing it safe by going with analytics. When yeah, it's, it's like a paradox. Right? Making is the complete opposite. It's a complete paradox in that respect. It's also just like wrong. Like, yeah. because so think about like an NFL broadcast, right? Like think about when Brandon Staley and John Harbaugh were, were going for these fourth downs and getting absolutely skewered. I mean, every time you get the C, the CBS, or NFL network, whatever, whatever post game show it is. Like how often is it a bunch of people like us being like, mm, this coach punted and he's a total coward and he should have gone for this and he should have gone for that. Never. It's like always a bunch of football guys being like, these guys and their analytics and their rock and roll, these kids these days, everybody's going forward on fourth down. How about this? How about you trust your defense? Whatever happened to you, trust your defense, play field position, run the ball. Like that's all you ever hear on any of these, on any of these shows. How about this? I got a question for the analytics, a rhetorical question because it's asked entirely in bad faith. I got a question for the analytics. Do you keep track of the weather? Can your models account for how good your team is? Can your models account for how your O-line is playing? Can your models account for how the defense is going to feel? That's what's on TV. Like Brandon Staley went from the most aggressive coach in the NFL last year to he has now not attempted a single fourth down in which the win probability, uh, expected win probability from doing so has exceeded 1%. He's gone from one of the most aggressive coaches in the NFL to one of the most conservative coaches in the NFL. That's the fear. Like coaches, when they lose acceptably, which is by punting, mostly and kicking field goals and running the ball enough. No one discusses it. No one pays any mind to it. When the Packers were running the ball down 17 points incessantly on the bills, they were lauded for it. You know, they were lauded for it on the broadcast. When a team abandons the run, when they try, when something's not working, it's so it's, it's criticized. The acceptable way to lose in the NFL is to lose conservatively, is to lose without trusting the analytics. And so the idea that anyone would be too fearful but to bow down to the nerd overlords on Twitter is like a complete imagined grievance, right? It, it doesn't actually, it's not rooted in anything. It's just someone's imagined grievance. It's just looking for something to blame that isn't yourself or the person in Chris Ballard who you've decided that you've trusted. We have to blame the analytics, Right? Like, has analytics just lost all meaning? Is it just like some boogeyman in NFL circles that nobody even knows what it is or what it means or what it says? It's just any time that there's a grievance for something on the product of the football field that they don't like, that they don't find aesthetically pleasing, that causes cognitive dissonance, their team losing, anything. It's just like, it must be the analytics. It must be the analytics. Like, one of our patrons was like, are the analytics in the room with you now, Jim? <laughs> like, was, I, I died. I think uh, I think one of my what, like one of the things that just drives me crazy if if I were ever to watch football, which I don't, but if I were like if I were to say like walking past a uh, electronic store and they had football on the TV and they're showing off the speakers so you could hear it, and then I hear one of the announcers say, "Oh, they're going to do the analytics play where they're down by ten and they go for the extra <laughs> two now," and I'm like, 
Stop calling it the freaking analytics play. Just call it the right decision. They're going to make the right decision and go for two. Stop labeling it analytics. It's so weird. Like, what, do you, what do you say when they don't make the analytics play? They're like, oh, they're going to make the football play here and kick, it, kick the uh, extra point. Like, what a dumb thing to say. Nobody would ever say that. Stop, stop like creating this divide between analytics and anything else. Just say, hey, they're going to make the play. That's probably the right play to make because here's why. You don't need to define it as an analytics play. Like, Jesus. Anyways. <laughs> That's always good. Oh, man. Okay. I think we've talked the Colts to death. It's sad. We've talked the Colts. I mean, the one thing maybe we should talk about, though, is because uh, I promised I promised a bottle episode for the people, which is that, you know, we're going to talk about a subject that's been bandied about on Twitter. And it's something that I can't decide. It's something that a lot of people in their dynasty leagues can't decide right now. And it's something that we're going to figure out right now. We're going to put this to bed. We're going to figure out the right answer. And it'll, it'll be the right answer from now until the end of time. There will never be another debate about it. Never. Probably in a couple of weeks. Probably, probably will not change. Like it'll never Thursday. change. It'll never, it'll never change because this position is, is historically very stable. So it'll definitely not change. Won't change on Thursday. Won't change on Sunday. And it won't change on Monday. For, and then after that, it's still the same. For most of the last calendar year, the answer to the question, who is the Dynasty RB1, has been the man with the horseshoe on the side of his helmet. It's been Jonathan Taylor. There's been very little pushback on this. He's been generational. Some have called him generational. That's true. Uh, that is no longer quite the case. Jonathan Taylor has this year been injured. Uh, he has been beset by a horrific team environment. And essentially outside of week one, he's either been injured mid-game hasn't played or, or been, as the kids would say, mid. Uh, Jonathan Taylor going forward is a very difficult projection because he now plays in an offense with Sam Ellinger that doesn't really throw to the running back or anyone with any sort of effectiveness and offensive line that's ranked uh, last in the National Football League in all aspects. So he doesn't project to score a whole lot of points. And of course, Jonathan Taylor, who at his best is one of the most efficient and effective running backs in the NFL, very unlikely to be that because he's now aggravated and already sprained ankle. And so whatever Jonathan Taylor that we're used to seeing the explosive dynamic tackle breaking fearsome Jonathan Taylor is, is going to be a, uh, a diminished Jonathan Taylor moving forward. And so is Jonathan Taylor still the dynasty RB one? We're going to talk. Let's first, uh, let's first figure out our field of candidates here. And then maybe we'll go one by one with what the case would be for each of these players to be the RB one. We'll decide who has the strongest case. Can we decide on our field of candidates here? I think these are the ones that are popularly mentioned, okay? Jonathan Taylor, Brees Hall, Kenneth Walker, Travis Etienne, Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, DeAndre Swift. Do you have any beyond this seven? DeAndre Swift can't possibly be in this conversation right now because he's the RB10 on Keep Trade Cut, which okay. is not good. That is not good. And I mean, I agree. He wouldn't be mine. But he's, I, he's behind Damian Pierce. Why isn't Damian Pierce in your list, Jacob? I, okay. How about, okay. We will add, we will add Damian. Who's number no, one? No, we'll not add Damian Pierce. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> Adding Damian Pierce to this conversation is erroneous as not having DeAndre Swift in this conversation. Okay. I'm kidding. DeAndre Swift needs to be a part of it. The masses have made a tremendous error in fading him simply because of injury. And it's ridiculous. Okay, so, so we're keeping DeAndre Swift in. Are we, are we adding Damian Pierce in? 
No, he's awful. Look, we're gonna add Damian Pearson. It'll be okay, brief. Okay, I'm gonna add Damian Pearson. He's okay, not who's, awful. He's who's number good. who's who's number seven, eight, and nine on keep trade cut then? Because if we're adding Swift at ten, uh, who are the other ones? Nick Chubb. Eckel, Nick Austin Chubb. Okay. Eckler. Okay. So so Chubb, Eckler, and Pierce. Okay, that's our ten. These are our ten candidates. Okay. So here's what we're gonna do. Okay? Wait, Javante because, Williams isn't in this conversation? No, he's not in this conversation. Oh. <laughs> if you're gonna buy, wait, 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 Najee Harris isn't in this conversation. <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Jalen Warren isn't in this conversation. <laughs> Hard to believe um, that Najee Harris, after being a superstar last year, has, oh. has fallen completely. Like, I, I tweeted today because I, this is just a side tangent. Matt, I'm sorry. Hashtag yeah, sorry, sorry, Matt. Matt. Sorry, Matt. Uh, I tweeted earlier today because I was really looking forward to like last year when I was just getting absolutely mm. like pile driven into the ground by the Najee stands about how he was not going to be a very good running back going forward and how this. Volume only lasts until it doesn't, and then it's going to be awful. And now that it's going to go away potentially, and the scoring hasn't materialized, and he's looking awful via film, and he's looking awful via every metric we could ever imagine. Yeah, there's only one running back worse in rush yards over expectation per attempt. Do you know who that running back is? No, who is it? Cam Akers. He's the only one that's that makes worked. sense. Medical sure. lab rat who was almost like jettisoned from his team <laughs> is the only player that is worse in rush yards under expectation versus Najee Harris. So Najee Harris is negative 0.88 rush yards over expectation. So 0.88 rush yards under expectation. That's, that's not great. So last year, this time, I was like, man, like I can't wait. I cannot wait to get on Twitter and run victory laps on these fools that loved Najee Harris. He was my RB3 in this class. This is ridiculous. And here we are, and I'm like, I don't even feel like running victory laps. Like, I, I, I just, it's just not, it's not fun. It's depressing. Who do you think would run a faster victory lap right now? You or Najee Harris? It's probably going to be me. And I also have a torn Achilles tendon in my past. Wow. So me and Cam Akers, roughly yeah. similar. Uh, so it's going to be close. Yeah, not, not a good one for, for Mr. Harris. Um, who do you think would be the better running back right now, Najee Harris or Kamala Harris? Easily Kamala. <laughs> Shout out. Uh, I, I got to say, as, a, as an ETN over Najee person, like at least, so you had the Javante over Najee take. Like, I mean, I also we, had the ETN right, over Najee take. Right. I had them both. Yeah. So we both had Najee as our RB3, but your RB1 was Najee and then ETN2 and then, and then Najee. To and, be fair, and, I had ETN and uh, Javante in the exact same tier. Right, but you ranked – right, but okay. Javante was – I did have Javante. I'm not saying this to mock you. I mean, he got hurt. He, he, like, I'm, I'm not saying this to yeah. mock you. He got hurt. It was not a bad I, decision. I'm just stating the fact. I'm just saying they're both well ahead of Najee right. Harris. Not okay, so I, so I had – we had one thing very much in common, which is that we had Najee Harris third, uh, which was not a, a common take. Uh, my difference is I had ETN first, and then I had Javante, and then I had Najee. Look, being the Javante person, like last year, a lot easier because people could dunk you on Najee Harris. You could be like, yeah, but Javante is like doing all the stuff, right? It could be like, oh, Najee's getting all the volume. Javante's all the efficiency. ETN was doing all the sitting on the couch recovering from foot surgery. Like that was a dark <laughs> timeline, right? But, but I have Undertaker gift. Out for the abyss. <laughs> How do you like me now, baby? Oh, I mean, Javante is sitting there injured. Najee is being a total bum like he's always been. It's, yeah. uh, yeah, the, the ETN RB waters. We've had an incredible turnaround <laughs> in 2022, <laughs> let me tell you. Love it. Okay, so let's do this. Who's the RB1 thing? 
Yeah, so here's what we're, here's the way I decided we're going to do this right on the fly because I think that of the two of us, I am the perpetual optimist on the show, and I I I am living a world of optimism. Like you no. probably can't see it, but on the wall behind my computer here, I actually have like a mural of rainbows and butterflies mm. because that is my persona. I live on a daily basis, and I believe that you need to surround yourself in an environment that you wish to mm. live in. Ergo, I am a beacon of light when it comes to optimism anyway carry on you're slightly less optimistic but still fairly optimistic okay well how about this i'll 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 leave this back i'll leave this up to you live on the air okay the way i was going to do this is i was going to give the optimist spin for each of these running backs as to why they are the dynasty rb1 overall in in increasingly serious fashion as we get from the clearly unserious candidates to the actually legitimate candidates (laughs) all right all right right. and then you were going to say why they're obviously not Okay. Okay, I can then, do that. Yeah. And then but what I was going to say be out of character you, for me. If you want to be optimistic, we can rotate back and forth. No, no, no. Or you can give I, the optimistic. It'll be and totally I can give out of character for me, but I'm I'm not like one of those tight cast uh, actors. Like I I can I can pull it off. Okay. So Let's I'll give go. a hint. So I'll give a hint to people. All right. These first few are going to be pretty quick because I don't think that there's going to be a lot of argument. As we get to the later ones, they might take a little longer. The ones that actually are probably worthy of our consideration of guys to everyone. Okay. So we're going to start with. I would say pretty confidently the player that each of us would have 10th among these 10. This is a player uh, from the University of Florida. Uh, However, while the University of Florida, uh, he did not have as many career carries as Tim Tebow. Um, So that was a, a, a legitimate knock on his profile. He was drafted in the fourth round. However, many reports have said, many people are saying that he does have that dog in him. Uh, it is, of course, Damian Pierce, the same Damian Pierce who has been taking the NFL by storm. The person who, when I left him out of my top 10 future dynasty running backs a while ago, people were absolutely outraged, could not fathom the idea that he would be left outside of anyone's top 10 dynasty running backs when he is so clearly an irreplaceable option. Here's the deal with Damian Pierce and why he is the RB1 overall. In Dynasty. Uh, look, if you want a running back who's going to, you know, dick around outside and catch a bunch of passes, that's not Damian Pierce. Mm-hmm. Right? If you want a running back who has explosive speed, who's going to be able to take balls all the way to the house on a moment's notice, that's not Damian Pierce either. If you want a running back who plays on an ascending offense that has the opportunity to score 20 to 25 touchdowns, over the course of a season. That's definitely not Damian Pierce either. But if you want a running back who's going to break more tackles than any other running back per his attempts in the NFL, that's also not Damian Pierce, but it's really close to being a Damian Pierce. He's third in that particular metric. Damian Pierce is a young bulldog of a running back who's been sparsely used so he's got a lot of tread left on the tire he had an eight out of over two in college and so that allows for an opportunity for potential expansion the receiving game in the intermediate and downfield areas on top of the rushing production that he's already shown to be an elite tackle breaking type of runner if you want the full package all you need to do is turn on the film get yourself some damian pierce rb1 overall in dynasty Yes, I, I I will be turning on the film later to just confirm this take. But in the interim, I'll use other things to disprove this irrational 
behavior. And uh, I'm really happy that we decided that I would go off script and be the negative person. <laughs> I don't think I could have pulled that off. I don't think I pulled it off very well either. I think, I you, really I think you did great. <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> so Damien Pierce is um, not a good prospect. Uh, he's playing well in the NFL. Good for him. I'm, re- I'm really happy for him. He is scoring at a terrific rate, 15.2 fantasy points per game. That is almost an RB1, uh, despite having you know pretty giant target or opportunity share of 72.6%. One of the things that I really love about Damian Pierce, as you've mentioned, is that he's just like dynamite in the passing game. Often I don't really care about yards per reception because it's it's fairly irrelevant and it, it speaks more to depth of target and things like that at the wide receiver position. The interesting thing about that is that the running back position, there is no depth of target. Pretty much all of the running backs catch the ball at or behind the line of scrimmage, which means that yards per reception does tell you a little bit about their capabilities in mm-hmm. the uh, receiving game. And Damian Pierce is a strikingly proficient receiver. Uh, like, like strikingly, he is averaging 4.9 yards per reception, which is atrocious. It is like like among the worst I can even recall seeing. Like he is absolutely definitively 100% not going to be a three-down running back in the NFL. He is Jordan Howard at best. And Jordan Howard was considerably better than Damien Pierce has been thus far. If we go further and we want to, you know, know about his efficiency, you did mention some things. I like, uh, I like one of the one of my favorite metrics is yards, uh, yards created per touch per fantasy or for uh, playerprofiler.com. No, it's not. Which, That's not one of your favorite metrics. We've talked about exactly why that metric is fraudulent. Yeah, it's fraudulent because it increases. It's an it's an unintentionally good metric, is what it is. Yeah. It tells it, it, you. It, it tells us. It doesn't necessarily tell us what it says it's telling us. Yeah. But it is actually directionally good. Yeah. At telling you who to draft. It's great. It's great because what it does <laughs> is it, it is yards per touch. It's not yards per carry. Yards created per touch, not yards created per carry. Which means that it, when you are a running back that's catching passes out in the flat, you are going to have to beat one man and then you'll get five yards. Like you, you make one guy miss, and there's not three more guys on top of you because you're you're out in space. So every time that you make somebody miss, you get more and more yards on a per-touch basis. The wonderful thing about this is that uh, despite having 20 receptions already through the first nine weeks of the season, Damian Pierce is number 22 in yards created per touch, which is decidedly not exciting. And uh, the wonderful thing about that as well is he is a 33.3% juke rate, which which isn't quite the same as broken tackle rate because broken tackle rate means that they actually had to have a chance They've got hands on you, like they've they've tried to right. tackle you. Juke rate also factors in the times that you just like literally evaded the tackle, which Damien Pierce does not do because Jamie Damien Pierce is not an athlete. He he's a guy who's just gonna hopefully break some tackles because he's pretty big. And what's really remarkable about that is that he's facing a remarkable 6.5 average defenders in the box per playerprofiler.com, which is completely bonkers considering the offensive weaponry displayed by the Houston Texans uh, featuring, you know, Brandon Cooks, who's pretty good. And then a whole bunch of guys that aren't pretty good. And then we're also featuring a quarterback who defenses are obviously terrified of and refuse to stack the box because of the presence of Davis Mills airing the ball down the field. They're not like, it's so wild to me. They're like inviting Damian Pierce to run. 
Well, that's because the Texans are always behind, right? There's score effects. You don't you don't yeah. play eight man in the box if you're up by 14 points. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but the whole point of this all is that he's facing no one in the box. So right. we're not dealing with him breaking a tackle and then having, again, gang tackles that he has to break. We're dealing with a guy who breaks a tackle and there's nobody else there. If he breaks one tackle, he's going to create more yardage. Except he doesn't. <laughs> It's just, he's just remarkable. I don't know. He is, he's David Montgomery. If you're into David yeah. Montgomery, that is so I, I've compared him to Chris Carson before. I've compared him to like a slight, a slightly poverty Josh Jacobs before. Yeah. I mean, sure. if, if you look at him, like, so he's a good runner, but like people have vastly overestimated how good of a runner he is. Right. So my, my like favorite stat in terms of like how good of a rusher you are i still don't think it's a perfect stat but if i was going to pick one it would be rush yards over expectation per attempt um he he is at 0.79 so that's like good it's not Najee harris who's at negative 0.88 uh like if your running back is at 0.88 you have a good running back but he's 15th in that metric he's he's right around guys like caleb huntley and tyler algier uh he's like like he's a good running back but if you're gonna bet on like a round four running back you either want them to be an extremely special rusher, an electric receiver, or at least a voluminous receiver, or an incredible athlete. And he's not an electric receiver. He's not an incredible athlete. And he's a good, not great runner. So that means his ceiling is being like Chris Carson and his floor is being immediately replaced like Jordan Howard or James Robinson. Yeah, I think that's the other thing with, is he the running back one in fantasy or in dynasty football is that, he carries a tremendous amount of risk. I don't really care what he does this year. It doesn't really matter unless he is completely special. Alfred Morris put up 1,600 yards and then never had another top 12 season. James Robinson was a running back five in points per game and and got bailed out by the Travis Etienne injury last year and was like running back 20 last year. Yeah. I get the offense was different. We had the – the uh, who's the coach? The really good one. The really good coach they had last year. They had to like go urban mire. Yeah, suburban uh, yeah, mire. I get that that was, yeah. you know, not great for the offense as a whole, but let's be serious. They were a bottom tier offense every year, or they should yeah. have been. Yeah. I mean, like, if you're going to bet on, if you're going to bet on Damian Pierce, like, who cares? I know it's a second year player. Just bet on Ramondre Stevenson. Like, if you look yeah. at their rush yards over expectation per attempt, they're like side by side. Uh, Ramondre Stevenson is fifth in the NFL in juke rate at 44.5%. They're like the same type of four, six, like tackle breaking type of running back. The big difference is, is Ramondre Stevenson actually catches the ball. He has 35 receptions versus 20 for Damian Pierce. That's like almost double in terms of his receiving game usage. He's ninth in the NFL in yards per route run. He's sixth among all running backs in target share. Like, at least with Andre Stevenson, it's like, oh, this is a day three running back who's like a good rusher, and he's a highly involved receiver, right? He's had seven targets or more in each of his last three games. Damian Pierce has not approached seven targets. So, like, this is, it's, it's a, right? Like, isn't Stevenson clearly like the more intriguing profile if you're going to make the bet? Like, and to be clear, I would not be trading a first round pick for Andre Stevenson either. But if, like, gun to my head, I had to do one or the other, I would take the one who's also catching a bunch of footballs. Yeah. It's, it's just, Let's just move on. I don't really want to talk about Damian Pierce. He's okay. he's such a terrible bet. So Pierce he's is not the RB1 overall in Dynasty. So that means it's one of these next nine players. Okay, it could be one of them. It could be Damian okay. Pierce. We're not sure yet. Okay, I'm going to talk about a guy who, look, I said that Damian Pierce is a good rusher, not a great rusher. Look, this guy is a great rusher, okay? The top two players in rushers over expectation per attempt are these puny little midgets who can never handle a full workload, known as Khalil Herbert, 
uh, who's actually not that puny, and Tony Pollard, who's also not that puny, but people think he is. But the first real running back in rush yards over expectation per attempt is no one other than the best pure rusher in the league. 1.85 rush yards over expectation per attempt. Nicholas Chubb. Nick Chubb is scoring an entirely sustainable and elite 20.4 points per game this year as a running back. And unlike these other losers we're going to talk about later, who's getting there on these cheap garbage time receptions, Nick Chubb is earning his production by running the football, right? And he's such a talented player that I don't care. Age doesn't even apply to him. He's so talented that being 26 years old doesn't even count because he's going to age into the sunset. He's going to be Derrick Henry, and he hasn't even had the workload of a Derrick Henry. So if you think about 28-year-old Derrick Henry now, who's second in the league in fantasy points per game among running backs, that's going to be Nick Chubb, but even fresher, even better, even more efficient. I don't care about these losers with their green tea and their PPR scoring. The number one overall running back in Dynasty is none other than Nick Chubb. You can't, yes. you can't, how can you not, how can you even argue with that? Because he's the best pure runner in the league. You can't argue with it. That's, that's very true. He is the best pure runner in the league. He is fantastic. He, the, the wonderful thing about Nick Chubb is we have this giant sample size, right? He's been one of the best rushers in the world since he entered the NFL. And that has gotten him 12.2, 15.9, 17.3, 15.4 .4 fantasy points per game from the dawn of time, which you might be thinking is pretty good, except it's pretty mid. Uh, he has been a back-end running back one pretty much since he got into the NFL. He's expected fantasy points per game is 15.4 which is rb14 in the nfl so he is just vastly outperforming everything that should be expected from him and uh as i was speaking earlier about um i already forget the terrible texans running back who is off rex burkhead you know the, the other one that we talked oh daria goomba wale number one yeah that one <laughs> so nick chubb has literally 70 receiving yards this year that is that is remarkable. Good for him. That's 8.8 .8 yards per game. That's really not going to get you there in a PPR league at all. He is just really doing well at touchdowns. He's already got 10 touchdowns this year. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, which is pretty remarkable because he, he has been a fantastic touchdown scorer since entering the NFL, scoring 10, 8, 12, 9, and now 10 in eight games. There is something that just isn't quite adding up here on a go-forward basis. And it's, and it's probably, your green tea. Probably the green tea and the avocado toast, but it also just might be that Nick Chubb is doing things that are completely unrepeatable. And we are continually told every year, every single year, we are told there is this player who is built different and he's going to outperform your stupid models and he's going to outperform your expectations and your everything. Like he's just going to outperform because he's that good. And then that doesn't happen. We were told that Gabriel Davis was going to score 10 points per target in fantasy football this year because that's what he does. He's that good. We were told that uh, who was the guy last year that was just lighting the world or wasn't lighting the world on fire because he wasn't scoring. Oh, uh, T Higgins. Yeah. T Higgins didn't score a touchdown for like nine weeks or something or maybe at one. And then he scored like six in the last half of the year. Like these things ebb and flow. They happen all the time. It happens every year. Every single year we are told that what has happened in the past will continue happening exactly as it has. And that's what is happening with Nick Chubb right now. He's on pace for like 22 touchdowns. So just go ahead and bank on that is what I always say.
Yeah, exactly. Just bank on it. Take it to the bank, right? Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Um, he, he's probably in the conversation for running back one. I think it was a great addition to add him into the conversation. Good job. That You didn't fulfill your job. You're supposed to be the negative. You just you just did a fake positive thing. Shoot. So yeah. he's really uh, not going to yeah. score enough points to be yeah. the running back one. Right. We want points. And we want to score points. So right, but he has scored enough points. So you're get owned. Get owned by stats. Get owned by what's ha- already happened. That is true. Okay, now seriously, Nick Chubb. Um, I mean, nobody actually. Actually, there was one person in my mentions that said Nick Chubb was the RB1 overall in Dynasty. But every, everyone else, except for that one very weird individual, obviously does not think Nick Chubb is in this conversation. Um, Nick Chubb's awesome. One of my favorite players I've ever watched play football. Uh, he's a, a glaring, glaring sell. And I know that he's going to keep owning me like it's an incredible season. I'm happy to get owned by it. Um, the other issue with Nick Chubb is like, unlike Derrick Henry, he still actually does seed goal line touches to other running backs. He still seeds like regular snaps, to other running backs. <laughs> He's probably going to fit like, well, he'll finish. He'll probably finish this season with his highest ever scoring total because the points in the bank aren't going away, but I would bet rest of season. He still comes down to like between 16 and 17 points per game. Yeah. Like even if you look at last year, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Eight. He had seven, seven touchdowns in the first eight games last year. Right. So you would expect that to continue. And then he had two touchdowns the rest of the year. So, like, just come on. Come on. This, okay. is, this, is, this is called variance. Stop buying into variance, people. Okay. We have one more. We have one more, like, somewhat unserious candidate. Although, should he really be an unserious candidate? Because here, here's, here's the case, right? Currently, the RB24 is your favorite running back of football, Jonathan Taylor. Uh, he's at 11.9 points per game, okay? Naturally. The Right now, the RB8, Alvin Kamara, is at 18 points per game, okay? There is a larger difference between the RB1 overall this year and the RB2 overall so far in points per game than there is between the RB2 and the RB8 in overall points per game, right? That's, we're talking like a 25% additional value of a replacement from the RB24 on the season. So in the sense that we want to score points and win fantasy leagues, the person who is three points higher than any other running back in points per game who catches all the passes we want them to do, who plays in the high-powered offense, why would we not have this guy as the Dynasty RB1 overall? Why is Austin Eckler not in the conversation for Dynasty RB1 overall? <laughs> you know, I, I know that you said this is a non-serious one, but honestly, like, he's scoring like Christian McCaffrey used to. It's, it's a little bit serious. Like, he's, he's literally scoring 25 points per game, which is what Christian McCaffrey used to score. And this was the type of ceiling that we – well, he, McCaffrey was a little higher – but this is the type of ceiling that we should probably actually be chasing. The problem, yeah. the, the only problem with Austin Eckler is that again we are chasing unsustainable touchdown rates. He's got ten touchdowns in eight games, which is completely absurd. He's got sixty receptions already this year. Sixty—that is a crazy number for halfway through the season on a running back. And I like he's getting a twenty-one percent target share. Mike Williams, Keenan Allen both been hurt. They—they they made Josh Palmer. I think that was his name. I actually don't even know what his name is. Is that his name? The guy's had 100 receiving what? yards last year. Or oh, last Josh, Josh Palmer? Was that Josh Palmer? Yeah, it was. Yeah. 
he was a creative player that I made in Madden a few years ago. He scored 100 yards. Shout out to Akash. He is indeed, is indeed right? a decent wide receiver three if Keenan Allen or Mike Williams is Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Austin Eckler has just been the beneficiary of chance as far as I can tell. There's pretty much nobody else on the team healthy. They're still scoring a lot of points. He's doing well. Like, he's playing well. But this 25 points per game is probably not going to continue. I can't imagine a world in which he scores 20 touchdowns year over year. He did score 20 last year, so it's possible. But man, like that is that is pretty wild. Uh, the bigger the bigger concern is the receiving. Like he's got 60 receptions. Last year he had 70. So like he's almost equaled his season production last year already. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with Mike Williams and Keenan Allen literally not playing basically all this year. Keenan Allen play, or uh, Mike Williams played a little more, but he's not quite what Keenan Allen is. Anyways, like get out of here. He's also 28 years old. It's it's or 27 years old. Yeah, 27.4. My mistake. Yeah, 27.4. His value upside. Like here's here's the best argument for why Steckler is the dynasty overall RB one. And this this unlike the other guys like Nick Chubb and Damian Pierce, I think are sells. I don't actually think Austin Eckler is necessarily a sell. I just think he's no, a dynasty RB one overall. The issue with Eckler is that. Nobody thinks he's a dynasty RB1 overall, and he's currently scoring three more points per game than any other running back in football. So if nobody is interested in paying anything close to dynasty RB1 overall prices for a running back who is scoring as much as you can possibly score and outperforming the competition by as much as he can possibly score, then he's clearly not the dynasty RB1 overall because he is never going to have any opportunity to have resale value at dynasty RB1 overall because it can't possibly get better than this. That yeah. being said, that might also be an argument to go buy Austin Eckler. Like, I, I think... I would have no problem, like, if you're looking at buying elite production, like, at, and, and you've already upgraded your quarterbacks and tight ends, like your maximum value over replacement positions, there's there's no reason why you can't look at Austin Eckler as one of those other elite upgrade options the way you would a Christian McCaffrey or a Saquon Barkley or a Stefan Diggs or a Cooper Cup or a Tyreek Hill. Like, there's no reason why Eckler can't be in that conversation of like a go buy a bunch of points to make an actually impactful deadline deal. So that's, mm-hmm. that's fine. Buy Austin Eckler is fine. It's obviously not the RB1 overall. Let's talk about the seven guys that there's maybe an argument for. Uh, we're going to start with your a player that you like a lot more than, than I do. It seems that the Lions like him similarly to how I like him in that uh, he's their third string running back. But um, should, should we switch this up? Should, should should you take the positive here? This feels weird for me to take the positive out, like on DeAndre Swift. I think you should take the positive on DeAndre Swift. Well, I, I like I th- I think our premise is kind of flawed, and that is this player the RB one because I don't think he's the RB one. I don't think the last three guys had a conversation for RB one. Right. We're doing a bit here, but you know what? I I am now doing the positive on DeAndre Swift, mm-hmm. and the reason that we like DeAndre Swift is because he's a better rusher than he was last year, which you okay. know. In a wildly small sample, we've seen him be a better rusher than he was last year. But it's a tiny sample, so who really knows? Uh, the big thing with DeAndre Swift is that he is a very good targeter. Uh, he had 15... What did he have? In 2020, he had a target share of 12.8 as a rookie. That's pretty good. And then last year, uh, he had 18.4%, which is number two in the NFL. And that was including the games at the end of the year when they basically didn't let him play anymore because he got hurt. Uh, in week 12, he got hurt. He only played 20% of the snaps. He'd already had three targets and three receptions in that game in the first 20% of the game. Then he came back in week 17 and 18. They basically just didn't let him play anymore. And Or maybe they were just never going to let him play anymore. I don't know. The interesting thing about DeAndre Swift, though, is that he does have that game-breaking potential in that if 
he does get the full workload, which he can. He like he's one of like four players in the NFL that can have a twenty percent target share at the wider or at the running back position, which is incredible. And that's the only real reason to buy into DeAndre Swift as the RB one overall. Um, I'm trying to remember his name now. We had one of the fantasy doctors come into the Patreon last. I think it was last summer. Did an AMA, and one mm. of the questions we had for him was about DeAndre Swift. Uh, actually, I don't really think it was even a question about DeAndre Swift. It was a question he was he does he does this really interesting thing where he goes through and uh, he tracks all of the players in college injury history, hmm. and he puts together this like process that helps him determine how much these players are going to be injured when they're in the NFL. And he was like really concerned about DeAndre Swift because he missed so many practices in, the, in college, and I was like. Dude, he hasn't missed any games. Like, mm. this dude doesn't miss games. What are you worried about? And he's like, no, nah, man. Like, these guys miss practices in college. It's going to it's gonna come back to bite them in the NFL. And here mm. we are with DeAndre Swift getting hurt a lot Constantly in a lot of hurt. years. It's been super Constantly. frustrating. And uh, aside from that, though, we should be buying the elite upside as the RB1 overall. Except that's not what I'm saying. And this is like, this is flaw. People, I need, I'm going to, I'm going to lean into the microphone here for a second. I'm not actually telling you to go and buy DeAndre Swift at RB1 overall because it's plausible that I would see that, but I'm not saying that. Just have to follow the bit. Well, look, here, here's what we're trying to do here. Look, there are, we don't know who the RB1 is. So I'm trying to go in reverse. We have to rule guys out. All right. We have to rule guys out and we have to see who we're left with. Right. So DeAndre Swift is, I mean, he's in a tough spot. I'll, I'll say him and Taylor are in a similar spot where they're in the same draft class. They're both going into year four. Uh, they are both really, really good. That being said, based on their health at this point this year, there is a very legitimate reason to think, and, and the fact that their teams are both going nowhere fast uh, and probably more committed to keeping their these running backs healthy than to trying to win games at all costs, as they should be. I mean, there's just legitimate concern that Taylor and Swift are like, totally replacement level the rest of the year or that if they get any more nicked up they're just going to be held out entirely and that makes some really awkward buys because if you're contending like do you really want to make your big deadline buy Jonathan Taylor or DeAndre Swift who might be hobbled slash ineffective slash shut down slash given a far reduced workload the rest of the year. Like that seems not very appealing. Like I would rather just spend less to go get one of the older guys who's going to produce elite numbers, or I'd rather spend a little bit more to get a different guy who's at least fully healthy right now. And if you're rebuilding, it's like, do you want to take the injury discount on a running back going into year four? Like it better be a pretty quick rebuild or you're planning to flip, right? So they become kind of unappealing, quite frankly, to like almost anybody just based on that setup. Um, Cooper Adams, Coops FB, as we mentioned previously, was asking if I view Taylor and Swift differently. I, I do. I think that with Taylor, we have seen a team willing to and successful while doing so, let him be a full-blown Belka running back, handling all of the carries, handling a good portion of the passing work. And then the, the reason why he wasn't getting the pass work is no longer on the team. So I think Taylor has that elite RB upside. I think Swift is a little bit more capped. That being said, we've seen with Austin Eckler that you don't actually have to be a bell cow rusher and with Alvin Kamara before him, that you don't actually have to be a bell cow rusher. You can earn so many targets. Johnny Swift, however, this year is at a 12.4% target share. Now, some of that is reduced based on him not running a lot of routes, 
but really only the most recent game was when his routes participation was was drastically reduced on the year he's at 1.5 yards per route run that's really good that is seventh in the nfl among running backs uh with a minimum of 50 routes um or sorry with a minimum of 20 targets my bad so we're talking about actual running backs involved in the passing game that's still not up at the elites with the position. Like if you look at the top, it's Brees Hall, two yards per outrun. What a king. Alvin Kamara, 1.99. Christian McCaffrey, 1.91. Antonio Gibson actually popping in this, 1.85. Naheem Hines, 1.79. Austin Eckler, 1.76. Swift is in this middle tier of running backs with Ramondre Stevenson, for instance, where it's a really good pass down running back, but he's not at that elite, elite level that he, I think he needs to be because if he's going to be in this type of conversation at any point in his career, he needs to be getting there for the pass game. He's not going to be the bell cow running back. Uh, so I think we, we have to rule out Swift. We're going to transition into the next guy. Um, and and that would be Brees Hall. And I, I think we're getting into candidates that like people now actually would make a legitimate argument for as the RB1 overall. I mean, the argument with Brees Hall is, is fairly simple. This conversation was happening in a better just world where Brees Hall did not tear an ACL. We wouldn't be having this podcast episode because the answer to who is the dynasty RB1 overall would be Brees Hall. Uh, he was clearly separating himself as the RB1 overall in a tier of his own. He is an absolute physical freak, bell cow running back, everything that we hoped and dreamed of, who is also leading all NFL running backs in yards per route run. He was a force in the run game, a force in the pass game. He was young at 21 years old. We had hopes, we had dreams. Really, the question is a medical one. Do we care about the ACL? Do we think that he'll bounce back? When do we think he'll bounce back? Are you willing to eat the year of no production? Let's assume that you're not a contender. You're just doing a startup right now, a mid-season startup. Okay? Mid-season startup, and there's no points counting towards this year. You're just viewing in a vacuum going forward. Would Brees Hall be the first running back you take off the board? Uh, that's, that's a much better question than otherwise. He would probably be in consideration. I don't know because we have that. right because we have to ask that right. Like if you, if if not even if pretending like this year doesn't even exist, mm-hmm. if Brees Hall isn't your clear, he's the, your first starting back overall. Then he's obviously we have to rule him out, right? Because mm-hmm. like if you're if you're not even sure that he would be then, then he can't be because then you'd rather have the players that are playing now. But if yeah, he's I at think, least that, then he's in the conversation. I think he would be my RB1 if this year didn't matter at all. Like if we just erase this year from the existence of the world and move forward with 2023 as year one, I think he'd probably be my RB1, but I'd probably still be looking at selling him in the offseason when these talk of him, you know, recovery, his miraculous recovery from this mm. ACL, he's ahead of schedule, he's just smashing in training camp. I'd, I'd probably be looking to sell him because we see these ACLs tend to last like whatever year they get injured in, the next one still sucks. Either they they have complications, or I don't know if it's complications, but like compensatory injuries or what it is. But like I remember Dalvin Cook missed a bunch of time his year. He came back from ACL. He was decent in the year that he played or when he played, but he wasn't like he wasn't the Dalvin Cook we've come to know since then. Uh, Saquon Barkley had, you know, came back slow, and then they started ramping up and they stepped on somebody's foot, and I don't know. It's yeah. probably not related. Or somebody stepped on his foot. I, I can't remember the way it worked. Something happened anyways. Uh, and then like with with wide receivers, we see ACLs tend to linger for another year as well. We've seen Allen Robinson and Corlin Sutton and Odell Beckham Jr. all struggle in the year back from ACLs. 
the list goes on and on and on. I, I don't have a comprehensive list, which is why I'm not like super like Brees Hall is definitely going to suck next year. But the overall like noticeable trend, like the anecdotal trend seems to be there that it's a two-year injury. Yeah, it's a fear. And if he shows any signs of it being a fear, then the market will react accordingly. Yeah. So I think he he's definitely in the conversation we ignore this year. I don't know that I would like be real happy to go into the season with him at RB1 overall, even though he might be my RB1 overall. It would probably be like, he's my RB1, but I'd probably just rather, rather have some other combination of players or picks. Yeah, he's he's not my RB1 overall, but there is a world where by like week six next year, he is my RB1 overall. I'll put it that way. There's more of a world for him to be that week six, than most of these week, other players. Week six? Like if he just comes back and starts smashing, you're not just going to move him to RB1 overall right away? Okay, sure. Whatever. Same way. I just threw an arbitrary number. I didn't like put I'm a lot just, of thought into what, what number. What would, like... Okay, my week, concern is week, okay, week three. I, I guess I meant week six in the sense of like, I don't think he's playing week one. So I thought he would like come back around week four or week five. And then he would like start looking like a baller and then by week six. But that's. Yeah. I'm basically in at him on, at RB1 as soon as he's productive again. That's yeah. that's the time. For yeah. Me. I mean, the, the way that I've mentioned it. So I think honestly, like. It, it's interesting where I, I would almost like compare a lot of these running backs to, to Barkley's like journey here where I think that Taylor right now is called, is like in, I view him similarly. We'll talk about him next, I guess. I view him similarly to Barkley, like middle of last year, where it's like taking the long view, I'm in on Jonathan Taylor in the sense that I think he's incredible and he's going to be incredible. Taking the short view. Generational? Because Saquon yes, is yes, generational. generational. He's generational. Right. So makes sense. Yeah, so taking the long view, he's going to be generational. He is generational. Taking the short view, he's going to be pedestrian because his team is probably not going to give him all the snaps because they're going to be resting him if and when he does come back. Uh, and this team is a tire fire and ineffective, and they're not going to be able to generate a lot of points for the running back. And then he's just not going to have the ability because he's playing on a bum ankle to overcome all of these obstacles. Right. We saw that with Saquon last year. He was in a shitty situation. He wasn't being used as much, and he wasn't actually that good. And then this year he comes back and he's awesome. And it's like, did I want to be in on Saquon last year? Absolutely. Yes, this time. But like, did I necessarily want to pay the full fright of what I expected him to be now and going forward? Well, well not really, because I also wanted to win games, <laughs> you know? And it's like, so where I'm at with like Taylor is like, I don't necessarily think that he's going to help me, me win games for the rest of this year, um, which makes him a little bit particular. Hall is at a different stage in the journey, right? He's at like the Saquon like a year plus ago where it was like, I think this guy will one day get back to being an elite RB1 overall type candidate. And maybe that happens immediately when he steps back on a football field. And maybe that happens like a year after that. And I just don't really know. Um, so like taking the long view, I want to be in on Brees. And I, I've been both buying and selling Brees. Like I've sold Brees off on almost all my contenders that have Brees. And I've been buying Brees, like buying the shit out of Brees on my rebuilders. Um, I will use this to transition to Taylor because I did a trade today, actually not on a rebuilder. I have a good team. It's a six and three team. I think I'm in third or fourth place in the league, but like second place is also six and three. So I could easily get to second place. Um, that's a startup that was just on this year, actually with mostly patrons. Uh, I believe Ferris is the commissioner of the league. 
And I was in a pretty unique spot in that I was drafting with patrons, which means that they weren't drafting any running backs, um, which means that I have like way more invested at the running back position than I would normally have. Um, so I have Jonathan Taylor. I have Austin Eckler, who I think was like a round five pick in this draft, because of course, um, and I have James Conner. And then hilariously, because it's a patron draft, I also have Damian Pierce. Uh, so <laughs> love it. <laughs> yeah, I think I got him in like the 12th round of the startup. Um, anyhow, Point being, I'm like very deep at running back. So I didn't, I could easily sell one and not necessarily have issues at running back. Um, I got an offer in my inbox of Brees Hall and a two for Taylor. And I was like, that's interesting because I think that Brees Hall and Jonathan Taylor have pretty similar value in the sense that I'm like, Jonathan Taylor will be out there and he'll be playing games. I, I would be really surprised if he averaged over 15 points per game for the rest of the year, to be honest. Like, I think that's just a, a, a negative outcome. So like, to me, I'm almost viewing Jonathan Taylor like he's out for the year in the sense that the price that you're paying for Jonathan Taylor is almost entirely based off of years that aren't this year, right? Like, I think he's going to have comparable production for the rest of this season to, like, several cheaper, uninspiring backs. Like, I, James Jonathan Taylor versus James Conner rest of the season, I feel like will be close, you know? So, if we ignore this year, is it James... Is it uh, Jonathan Taylor or is it Brees Hall? Well, that's the question. And so what I decided was, well, I don't want to decide, so make it worth my while. So I countered with Jonathan Taylor for Brees Hall and in two seconds. He has three seconds, this manager, and he sent me the latest of the three with Brees Hall, so or at least the latest projected. So I countered with Brees Hall in the earlier of the earlier two of the three seconds, and he accepted that proposal. So, so I have Brees Hall in two seconds. My thoughts are, I think you can make an argument either way. Right in a in a ceiling scenario, Brees Hall is the one who's the better bet because he is two years younger. Uh, you get two additional years, and running backs don't have a lot of years, so two years matters a heck of a lot in terms of how many years he can recapture top value before you know he he hits the age apex. I think it's also like if you're asking me who do I think is going to be better next year, like Jonathan Taylor's better in most scenarios because he's not coming off the ACL. So I think it can kind of go either way. It certainly to me can kind of go either way enough where if I'm given two second round picks to play with to either pick players or trade or whatever, I'm down to do that. Really where I made the trade, I have no idea if I'm going to hold Brees Hall. Well, I looked at it. It was weird. I've only been acquiring Brees Hall on rebuilding teams. Like I said, I have no intention of rebuilding this team. Well, I looked at it. It was like, my starting lineup is actually still pretty good. Like I'm going to get Deshaun Watson back. So I'll have Watson and Carr when he comes back. I'll still have Eckler, James Conner, Damian Pierce, and my wide receivers are like Devontae Adams, Chris Godwin, and I think I have Judy and Juju and Gabe Davis and some other like kind of meh guy. Uh, and a tight end, I have Waller and Tanyan. So I'm like, I, I can still like compete in this league, even if I just let everything sit on my bench. But like now I also have like Brees Hall and I have an extra couple second round picks. And I just feel like that's a more liquid like form of value where like now I could buy like a cheap old guy for those two second round picks. Um, and probably get the same production as Jonathan Taylor and then have Brees Hall sitting around. Whereas I feel like before my value is very illiquid because the only way I could use it is like convincing someone to take Jonathan Taylor. And I don't know that there's a whole bunch of suitors willing to pay Jonathan Taylor level prices for Jonathan Taylor. Um, so I guess in that sense, what I would say is that I slightly prefer Jonathan Taylor to Brees Hall, but I think that in the ceiling scenario for chasing the tail, so to speak, if neither are going to be very useful this year in a value of a replacement sense, then the guy two years younger probably has the higher ceiling. Yeah. Well, and he projects as a better 
player as well. So there's that aspect. Mm, I don't know about that one. I mean, Brees Hall is the higher receiving ceiling. Jonathan Taylor is the better rusher. That's what I'm saying. You're chasing the tail, and the cha- tail says get the receptions. And Brees Hall is probably going to get more receptions than Jonathan Taylor. Yeah, almost certainly. Uh, hilariously, thinking about Jonathan Taylor and how he's probably not going to be very good the rest of the year. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was after his rookie year, Jonathan Taylor's rookie year, or after before Jonathan Taylor's rookie year. One of the, one of the two scenarios, anyway. Around the time I think Leonard Fournette got cut by the Jaguars, mm. I went and was arguing with someone. It might have even been Jax. And I was like, yeah, like Leonard Fournette was a way better prospect than Jonathan Taylor. Oh, this is wow. ridiculous. That's, that's outrageous. And I was like, honestly, like I would be shocked if Jonathan Taylor has more RB1 seasons than Leonard Fournette does. And now I'm like, Leonard Fournette's racked up three more since then. <laughs> So that was a pretty uh, wild, wild time to be alive. Anyways, Jonathan Taylor is great. Uh, he's a very good rusher. He's maybe going to get more receptions now. I, I, like he at least has the opportunity to get more receptions. He's never now. been a bad receiver. He's not like a Nick Chubb, Derrick Henry. Yeah, well, I don't think like, he was over. Nick he was Chubb over a ten. Well, he, he's never been used as a receiver. Jonathan Taylor yeah. has. He was over 10% target share in college, and he's already been like perfectly adequately used in the receiving game in the NFL. He's yeah, never no, shown he elite receiving upside, but he's never been like, like, I don't think there's any reason why Jonathan Taylor can't have an Ezekiel Elliott-esque receiving ceiling. Yeah, I think that's perfect. That was the ceiling case for Jonathan Taylor all along, yeah. was that he's Ezekiel Elliott peak. which Right, is but, like, but explosive. Hey? Explosive Zeke. He's an explosive Zeke. Yeah, 20 points per game. That's what Zeke scored for like the first right. four years of his life. Jonathan Taylor could turn that into 22 by being good. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, yeah. No, like Zeke had, a, Zeke had like a 77 reception season. Like he had one real strong yeah. receiver. I think 2019, yeah. 2018 it looks like. But anyways, oh, like he, he had a, a really strong receiving yes, year, the year, the one year. Yeah. Jonathan Taylor can probably do that, I think. Like I don't, I don't see any reason he couldn't. Especially now that Naheem Hines is out of the way, like I would imagine Jonathan Taylor is going to play all of the important downs now on a go forward basis, unless he like totally fumbles the rest of season where when he's injured, which is possible, and then they go and draft another Naheem Hines in the late day two, early day three to siphon all of the joy from everything. Thanks, Chris. Draft like Deuce Vaughn. Yeah, it's just like Chris Ballard is the worst. Anyway, like Jonathan, I think Jonathan Taylor is going to score 20 points per game. Like I, I, I've always thought he's going to score 20 points per game. I right. think he's probably still going to score 20 points per game. It's kind of his floor now, though, rather than yeah. that being like a moderate projection. I think that's more of a floor projection at this point. Right. Whereas Brees Hall, I think, like he's doing things, or he was doing things that were really, really exciting. His his rookie year target share alongside Michael Carter was already at like 13 or 14, leading all running backs with minimum 20 targets yards per round as well. Yeah, like he he was. I mean, that's small sample prone to outsized sure. long sure. runs, which he had a few, but like yep. he was getting well, a lot of targets, no, even with Michael Carter. It was like part of it was that he was getting downfield receiving work, yeah, which like, is never like, happens. We talked about that earlier. Like, with like, people don't get that, like running backs don't get that. Like one of his long receptions was on like a wheel route that had like 30 air yards. Yeah, right, like so, made a nice catch, right? Like that's that's the stuff that like Barkley does and Aaron Jones does. Yeah. 
and Alvin Kamara does, and Austin Eckler does. It's not stuff that Jonathan Taylor does. If I were Ezekiel Elliott ever did, if I were like comparing Jonathan Taylor to Brees Hall, and I'm not counting this year, I'm probably just taking Brees Hall. If I'm counting this year, I think there's a chance that Jonathan Taylor comes back and Jeff Saturday just presses the like run button on repeat because Sam Ellinger's terrible. And Jeff Saturday probably really likes to run the ball as well because he was oh, like, I, I bet you. Well, did you ever see the mic'd up argument with Jonathan with Jeff Saturday and Peyton Manning screaming each other when Jeff Saturday was mad at Peyton for not call, not running the ball enough, and then Peyton just said, "Shut up and block." <laughs> <laughs> so sounds about right. So like, I think there's a chance that Jonathan Taylor comes back and they just run him into the ground because they got no other options, and you know does pretty well this year. I think he's also injured, so I, I doubt that happens, but it's yeah. possible. Whereas Brees Hall is not coming back at all. Right. There's, there's no hope of any type of reclamation project this year for Brees Hall. But if we're ignoring this year, we're starting next year, I think Brees Hall has a chance to just be the better fantasy producer for the rest of his life, and he's two years younger. But I think I'd take Brees Hall not counting this year pretty easily. So I guess if you're a rebuilder and you have Jonathan Taylor, I'd be going to offer Jonathan Taylor for Brees Hall Plus just like you did. Okay, so what we've determined is that counting everything, it's not abundantly clear whether Jonathan Taylor or Brees Hall is the better option, which means that, and it is clear, would we say it's clear that these two are better options than all of the other options we've talked about? Yes. Okay, so then what we've, we've established is that we have not ruled out either. Both of these guys are still on the dance floor here. All right. Okay, we have four names left to get through. Oh my God. And then we will anoint the RB1 over. Right, we will not be doing any other segments. The other segments won't be happening. Um, hey, actually, you know what? I had an idea. Matt, if you could, when you're like, um, you know, editing and such, if you could put it on two times, this will actually be a one hour podcast for you. That's my idea. That's my solution. <laughs> That's a good call. Um, I, I was going to make a note because I thought that you were actually making a real suggestion, but that was, no, that I would was never, I would never contribute anything worthwhile to this podcast. Okay. So we were going to, for the, for the ref, for the reference to the listeners, this is your little intermission here. We were going to talk about Justin Fields. It's now 1122 central time, which means we will not be adding extra segments. Uh, we like Justin Fields. We thought we disagreed. It turns out we don't really disagree. Um, we'll probably talk Justin Fields next week. You, uh, we're not even having a show next week. We'll probably talk. Maybe I'll just maybe I'll just come on air and I'll just talk to some people for myself. For we should get one of the other analysts uh, to fill in for sure. me next week. That's what we should. Okay, do. I will get another analyst to fill in to talk yeah. about Justin Fields. Like we got um, lots of analysts in the Discord. One of them can do. jump in. Okay, I will get I will get one of them to do it. Uh, okay, what we're gonna do then? We're gonna talk about the last four running backs. We're gonna keep it to five minutes per running back. No, we won't. But we're gonna really try. Um, <laughs> this next one. This next one is the guy that we've, we've name dropped. His shadow has hung over this podcast thus far. We talked about him in relation to these other running backs. It's Saquon Barkley. Saquon hmm. Barkley has arguably the best workload in the NFL. He is one of the only running backs in the NFL that can truly be described as having an elite profile in all phases of the game. He is still miraculously just 25 years old, and he is now back to full health. Saquon Barkley... Uh, definitely, I think, has an argument, especially going into a free agency year where he might get just an epically good landing spot a la what we've seen of Christian McCaffrey and the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, would, would Christian McCaffrey, would Saquon Barkley, sorry, would Saquon Barkley be the RB1 overall? And I'll combine this with Christian McCaffrey because they're both uh, the same age. And so I think it's fair to consider these two. Or actually, Christian McCaffrey is slightly older. But they're both the same age range, right? Chris McCaffrey is 26, Barkley 25. 
which of these two would you rather have? At least knock one out. And then we can compare these to the two young guys. I think if I were to compare Saquon Barkley and Christian McCaffrey, I'm going to go with Christian McCaffrey because yeah. he Correct is answer. in a substantially better situation right now. He's playing with the San Francisco 49ers, and we can only pray that Saquon is so lucky at some point in his life. Um, Saquon could be tethered. like He could resign in New York, which would be wild, and he'd be stuck with Daniel Jones-led offense yet again, and it would just be awful. Like as bad as it is right now, which he's still scoring 20 points per game. So it's not that bad. But like there's so many other situations in the world in which he could just like smash and he just can't in New York. Christian McCaffrey can actually smash. Like his first game with the 49ers, he scored like 40 points or something ridiculous, which is pretty exciting. I don't know that I would bet on that every week. Obviously not. But I don't know that – um, Saquon Barkley even has that kind of ceiling in him right now. Like, yeah, it's just Bar- not an option. Right. Barkley's been tremendous this year. He's doing everything he can. He's hit 1.06 rush yards over expectation per attempt, which is pretty incredible when you consider the offensive environment he's in and how much everybody literally knows that the ball is obviously going to Saquon Barkley on every single play. Uh, Saquon Barkley, though, he's always been that boom-bust rusher. Like He leaves the entire NFL in stuff, in stuff rate. And he's also second of the entire NFL in yards created. Like he's, he's going to be that boom bust type of player. Um, his volume has been absolutely tremendous. He's up at a 17% target share, which is getting him back closer to rookie year levels. I actually think that he's going to regress positively in the receiving game. He's only at 0.98 yards per route run, which is like bad, even by running back standards. That's quite bad. I think that the long sample of Saquon Barkley would say that he is not bad in the receiving game. He's actually good in the receiving game. Um, so I think that he's going to regress positively over the uh, over the course of the season. He's not even scored a receiving touchdown yet this season. He hasn't been able to break one in that facet of the game. All that being said, I do agree with Drew. Christian McCaffrey uh it's not quite the rusher that saquon barkley is he's not going to be able to provide quite as efficient rushing historically on that high of a workload he's still a damn good rusher like he's at 0.40 rush yards over expected per attempt that's in the same tier as jonathan taylor this year it's the same tier as Ramondre stevenson austin eckler miles sanders kareem hunt like he is still providing value of replacement on his carries um and add in everything that he does in the receiving game where he truly is an unparalleled force. He's at 1.91, uh, 1.91 yards per route run. Um, in terms of how many targets he's drawing, he is at the highest rate in the NFL. Of course, he's at a 22% target share. That even includes the game in which he played like 20% of the snaps his first game in San Francisco. So Richard McCaffrey Absolute total stud. His first full game in San Francisco, he went for like 40 points. The ceiling is limitless. Um, if you're going to, I put out my tweet where I said, is there any single running back you would give two first round picks for? Just base first round picks. You don't know if they're late. You don't know if they're early, whatever. Is there anyone that you would trade two first round picks for? And what I said was, I think that in a vacuum, the answer would be no. But if I was going to do it for any running back, and I'm not sure that this running back is necessarily the best running back overall in the vacuum to invest in a dynasty. It would be Christian McCaffrey because his ceiling in terms of value added over replacement is like 30 points per game um, with his role in, in the context of the San Francisco offense and his skill set. And to me, if you're going to make any sort of trade that is a value loss in a vacuum, the only way to justify that to me is to get the player who's going to provide such egregious short-term value over replacement 
that you're okay sacrificing long-term value in order to pile up an absolute shit ton of points. And there's no better bet, in my opinion, at the running back position to pile an absolute shit ton of points where he's just lapping the field. Like, whenever someone's like, oh, like, should you, should you never lose a trade? Like, example, I always use Travis Kelsey. There's no player I'd rather lose a trade to acquire than Travis Kelsey. Like, if you play in, like, a, especially if you play in a tight end premium league, like, if you're going to lose a trade somewhere, you're just going to overpay for someone, just overpay for Travis Kelsey because you're going to lap the shit out of the field at tight end and you're going to score a ton of points and it's actually going to dramatically increase your win probability. I feel almost similarly about Christian McCaffrey where in this San Francisco offensive environment, he has the potential. Now, we haven't seen it for sure for more than one game, but he has the potential to just obliterate the rest of the competition. Christian McCaffrey, to me, clearly over Saquon Barkley, he gets to move on to the final round where Christian McCaffrey is, is still alive. Yeah, so like even so like Christian McCaffrey came back after like basically missing the last two years. And yeah. he wasn't all that good his first three weeks. He had 15.7, 16.8, 13.5 points per game, which was like eh, is like it was good comparatively to other running backs, but it wasn't Christian McCaffrey's standards. Interestingly, he only had four, five, four targets in those games, which is where Christian McCaffrey scores most of his points. Then after that, in Carolina, before he got the system upgrade. He went 9-12-8 for targets and scored 25.8, 23.4, 22.8 fantasy points per game, which is what we expect from Christian McCaffrey. Mm. Now he's in San Francisco. He's had, he, you know, the first game he got traded on like the Friday and he they were like, come on out, Christian, play with, play with the boys, let's go. And then the second game they were like, okay, Christian, you're the workhorse here. Let's, yeah. let's do this. And then he scored 40 points. So like, I, I think, there's a reasonable chance that the first three weeks they were kind of working him back in a little bit and maybe weren't asking him to do the things that they have asked him to do in the years past. Mm -hmm. It's possible. It's also possible. That's just variance. And that's just the way. And ultimately, and I mean, it doesn't even matter. And I mean, with those Jamokes anymore. Yeah. So it's just like Christian McCaffrey has a ceiling that nobody else can touch. And that's why he should be in a tier separate from, Saquon Barkley. I think we can rule out Saquon Barkley. Well. Okay, so Christian McCaffrey, Brees Hall, and Jonathan Taylor have moved on to the yeah. final round. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pitch these last two running backs. I grouped them together as well because they, while one of these is a rookie and the other one is technically a sophomore, they've kind of had a similar path this year in that both entered as backups to start the year, although one was in much more of an even timeshare than the other. And then eventually, whether it be by injury in one case, by trade in another case, uh, these guys have ultimately usurped uh, the role as lead runners. The other thing to note is that both of them are doing it in a very similar way. Both of them are doing it by being massively explosive, efficient rushers. Travis Etienne, one of the guys I'm talking about, is fourth in the NFL in rush yards over expectation per attempt. He's at 1.71 in that category. Kenneth Walker, the other one, 1.31 rush yards over expectation per attempt. That ranks sixth. Right in between them, of course, is Brees Hall. Um, these are definitely players that have been really exciting new additions. We weren't sure that we were going to get these rushing running backs that were going to fill in, fill in the void between these other exciting young running backs that came in and got injured. Both were bulletproof running backs, of course, in your process. If we look uh, at PFF grades, uh, Kenneth Walker has a sterling 82.4 rushing grade. Travis Etienne, even more sterling, truly incredible. 90.6 PFF rushing grade uh, among the highest in the National Football League. Which one do you prefer, and would you push either of these guys to the final round? I'm going to go get my computer charger while you answer this question, but uh, go off, King. 
Yeah, so it's pretty easily Travis Etienne for me. I think Kenneth Walker is exactly what we thought Kenneth Walker would be. He did great as bulletproof. Uh, Jacob and I had a great many debates around the merit of him being bulletproof despite having no receiving upside. He, like, I remember distinctly in the Discord saying, Kenneth Walker's floor is like Nick Chubb. And Jacob took tremendous amount of offense to that statement simply because Kenneth Walker or Nick Chubb is one of the best rushers in football. And I was like, well, that's kind of what Kenneth Walker projects as is one of the best rushers in football. And here we are. Kenneth Walker is one of the best rushers in football. The problem of course, is that we didn't think that he had a rushing or he didn't, we didn't think he had a receiving upside and he still doesn't really have a receiving upside. Maybe it works out. Maybe it doesn't. The appeal, the appealing part of the Kenneth Walker profile in the draft process was that he was priced as though he didn't have receiving upside. That never happens. <laughs> Like it, it was, it was a true anomaly. If you look at all the bulletproof running backs that were in the NFL draft over the last, I forget how many years I have, twenty back to two thousand seven. If you look at the average draft position startup draft for those running backs that are bulletproof, they're almost always drafted in like the top forty one QB picks, like mm. almost always. And a lot of them are drafted in like the twenties or the, the teens. Ken Walker was going to like 54. Like he was going well after. And now, and, and like the play was, in my opinion, you draft Ken Walker, you let him be awesome at rushing the ball. You let the masses get over their skis about, oh, he could catch passes or, oh, it doesn't matter. Look at Rashad Penny's upside, which obviously is the same thing. We, we cannot bank on these long touchdowns on repeat or a, you know, like we're basically looking at Nick Chubb, which is what my argument was from the start or Ken Walker is basically going to be Nick Chubb and that, or, or he could be Derrick Henry, but that's pretty freaking rare. We've basically never seen a Derrick Henry before. We've seen a lot of guys that are very efficient rushing the ball that score back end running back one numbers. Ken Walker is probably going to continue doing that into the future. There's a chance he catches passes. There was always a chance he catches passes, but now the chance that he catches passes is not baked in. Now it's like a demand that he catches passes to pay off at RB one overall. And I'm not willing to go on. And it's probably and it's probably less likely now that he'll catch passes. And it's less likely because because he's so far not done it. Yeah. In the passing game, like we've seen him not be Bruce Hall. Yeah, I mean we had we Kenneth Walker people on Twitter like victory lapping that he caught three passes for 20 yards this week, which is a sign that you don't expect him to catch passes at all. Like if you're like really excited about three receptions, then he's not going to. That brings him up to one reception per game in games that he's been the lead running back. We've talked Kenneth Walker to death. He's a really good bet. He's he's not in this category. He should be a tier below uh, this category in terms of people competing for RB1 overall. But it is worth mentioning that uh, when I tweeted out this this tweet that I said, uh, that is what I do with a tweet. I tweeted out. Uh, and I said, like, is there any running back you give two ones for? By far the most commonly answered running back is Kenneth Walker, uh, which is, is, is mesmerizing to me. But he is awesome. I will say, I still think it's peace. Like, I'm going to sound like such a picky little bitch, but I still think it's slightly overextended how good Kenneth Walker is as a rusher. He's a really good rusher. The way people talk about him is as though he's in a completely different tier from any other young running back in the NFL as a rusher. And he's just not. There's just no data that would support that notion. Like I talked about rush yards over expected per 10. He's at 1.31. That's really, really incredible. It's seventh in the NFL. If you look at running backs with at least 100 attempts or more, it's even better. Then that's third among running backs in the NFL. It's behind Nick Chubb and Travis Etienne only, which is really awesome. It's also like 0.02 above Jeff Wilson, right? So it's not like it's like completely um, out of this world. 
The other really interesting thing about Kenneth Walker is if you look at the percentage of rushes over expectation uh, with at least 50 attempts, Kenneth Walker actually ranks 10th worst in that category in the NFL, right? Which is what I've said he is since college. He's a boom bust rusher. He dances too much in the backfield. Well, I should say he dances a lot in the backfield. Sometimes it's too much and he gets tackled for a loss. Other times he dances very effectively and that he creates opportunities for himself to grip off big plays. He's also an incredible tackle breaker and he's a really high end explosive rusher. If you look in terms of PFF rushing grade, he is outside the top 15. He still has a really strong PFF rushing grade at 81, but he's not like in that elite tier. Travis Etienne has more rush yards of perspective for attempt. Travis Etienne has a better PFF rushing grade. Travis Etienne by all accounts this year has actually been the better pure rusher. Uh, and honestly, Travis Etienne's pass catching has been a disappointment this year. He's been only at a 9.5% target share. His target per route run is 16%. Uh, that's below players like Najee Harris, players like Joe Mixon, who we think of as adequate, not elite pass catchers. And really, Travis Etienne, even in college, was a little bit less of a elite pass catching running back and more like an elite space running back who they would throw passes to to get him in space and that's what he's been in the nfl i think with etn what's been exciting is that i don't think it was at all baked into the idea of travis etn that he would be an elite high volume pure rusher like i don't think that was people's expectations of him but at this point it would be really hard to look at what he's done and not say that we think that he is or at the very least can plausibly be perceived of as an elite high volume pure rusher because since James Robinson left town 24 carries and 28 carries <laughs> like that's 26 carries per game that's a lot of carries and he's continued to be super super efficient on high volume I, I I do think that with ETN with his usage in all phases with his elite rushing upside and with at the very least this can be Jonathan Taylor-esque adequate pass volume at only 23 years old in just his second season uh, to me he's in that same conversation right like why do we love jonathan taylor he's an elite pure rusher with adequate receiving um ability travis Etienne thus far has been an elite pure rusher with adequate receiving ability i think he should be in that conversation and he's currently healthy so to me i think that i think that like yes there's a sample size concern but I don't think it's crazy to put Travis Etienne in the same conversation. I'm going to push back on the sample size concern because we also have four years of Etienne playing in college. Like we know he's good at football and now he's in this role where we suspect that he will continue to be in this role. Just like Jonathan Taylor. We suspect he will, his role will grow now that Naheem Hines is gone. We expect Travis Etienne's role will now maintain now that we've seen James Robinson be gone. Maybe not to the 24 you know, yeah, he's probably won't average game, game, yeah. but uh, he's, he's certainly going to be a workhorse running back from going from now going forward. I think that you make a great point and I would like to now eliminate Brees Hall and Jonathan Taylor from the conversation of RB one overall. I think it's down to Travis Etienne and Christian McCaffrey. Really? Right? So you yeah. think Etienne is clearly in any league in a vacuum, you would be trading Brees Hall and Jonathan Taylor for Travis Etienne. I think I would, because I don't really know wow. why we wouldn't. That's I never exciting. really thought about it that way, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, what, what, what am I afraid of with Travis Etienne? He's in a young ascending offense. We we know he's not going to be playing with uh, what's what's the shitty quarterback in in uh, Indianapolis, Sam Ellinger. Sam Ellinger. We know he's yeah. not going to be playing in a Sam Ellinger <laughs> right, offense. Like Trevor Lawrence. We know the Jaguars may have like a progressive front office. We we don't know for sure, but they've been drafting pretty good players and they've been signing pretty good players. 
And I think that Doug Peterson has always been like a good coach. Like he's been a coach who gets it. Like he passes the right times. He goes for it when he should go for it. Like I think we know effective offense at this point. We know definitively that the Colts offense and entire front office team structure, everything is going the way of the Tennessee Titans, and we should not be overly excited about that. Whereas the Jaguars, I think, have a lot more potential to become the next great offense in the NFL. And, and you know what's know great about the Jaguars uh, is they get to play the Colts two times per year and the Texans two times per year. And so they get Travis teaching it's the feast on these two ridiculous franchises four times per year. So, like, like back, back to Jim say for just a really quick second. How, like, how dumb lucky is he that he got Peyton Manning and Andrew Locke? <laughs> Like, can you imagine if they didn't get Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck? And they, like, let's say they, they got the second overall pick in either of those years, and they, and got, they got Ryan Leaf or Ryan Leaf and Robert Griffin. Robert Griffin, like that that franchise would have never won anything. They would have they would have literally never. Are you won saying they, they wouldn't have been in the upper quartile of the upper quartile of the upper quartile of teams? He's basically like taking credit for having Peyton Manning on his team, like one of the most no-brainer picks of all time. He's like, "We are so good at this. We've we are in the upper quartile of the upper quartile, and and ignore the fact that all those wins came with Peyton Manning, and and then we won games with Andrew Luck, and then when Andrew Luck was hurt, we didn't win any more games. But if you ignore the fact that when we didn't have like top, not not like adequate quarterback play, like the best quarterback play in football. When we didn't have the best quarterback play in football, we didn't win any games. But ignore that. We're in the upper quartile of the upper quartile, so we lucked yeah. into two of the best quarterback prospects we've ever yeah, played. that's the funny thing. It's not it's not like the Eagles, right? It's like the Eagles can like take credit for their quarterback play. Like they had, they made a bold decision to like draft a quarterback in round two that they believed in, despite already having an apparent franchise quarterback or paying franchise quarterback money to. Then they made the even more bold call to develop that quarterback to go with him instead of Wentz. And they can be like, yeah, this like Jalen Hurts thing, like the fact that we have Jalen Hurts and this team around him is like a credit to our organizational intelligence. Whereas the Colts were just like, we were so bad that they awarded us with a high pick and we drafted the guy that everyone else would have drafted. (laughs) So so like coming back to Travis Yeah, twice. Like imagine being Jim Mersey, like, man, silver spoon. Anyway, coming back to the Travis Etienne versus Jonathan Taylor thing, like I think that plays into it. The offensive environment, it, it may not be top of the league in Jacksonville, but at least it has potential to be. Whereas I, I, I kind of think the the Colts are just going to be awful for a long time now. I sadly agree. Like, oh, it's going to be rough to be a Colts fan. So I'm I'm taking Jonathan Taylor out of contention on my board. Okay. Uh, you can leave him wherever you want. Uh, I, I think I think we were going to say in a vacuum, who's the better player, Jonathan Taylor or Travis Etienne? It's Jonathan Taylor. Cards on Jonathan Taylor. It's Jonathan Taylor. It is. But Jonathan. From a fantasy points scoring potential perspective, I think I'm going to go with Etienne. I. <sighs> There's like so there's some like level of lingering doubt that I have with ETN, which is weird because I've been like the biggest ETN fan of there's like no most people on fantasy Twitter. And I think that it's just like me being gaslighted by film bros for like multiple years. I think that's that's and I think I can't shake it. I think you have more confidence in your abilities to go beyond the film bros, but I think that the film bros have like sunk their hooks into me. And I really try to take in all that. Like I try to be the sword of Godric Gryffindor, right? I try to take in that, which makes me stronger. I, I don't want to just dismiss people that have valid concerns. I, I also, I am a little bit of a closet film, bro. Like I watched the ETN film. I see what they're seeing. I did a breakdown of one of his games in the patron discord. I was like, these are some like really sloppy ass plays that he's making. 
And I guess my concern with ETN is like, will this role stick? Like, will the team continue to allow a fairly mistake prone, if dynamic and elite player to take all of the work? Or am I going to be spending time waiting for like another shoe to drop? And I don't mean a shoe to drop in the sense he's going to get replaced or anything crazy like that, but just that he's not going to be like, here's your 80% snap share, Travis Etienne, for the rest of time in the sense that like Jonathan Taylor, I think is like such an unimpeachable talent that he would. I think that Brees Hall is such an unimpeachable talent that he would. Like there's just, there's just some aspects of Etienne's game that are like, <gasps> like it's just he... Right, like his hand positioning is terrible. Like he drops too many passes, and it's a it's a legitimate issue. He also is a boom bust decision maker behind the line of scrimmage. Although so is Kenneth Walker, and everyone thinks that he's just got that dog in him and that Etienne so is some, Saquon whatever. Barkley. It's so frustrating, and so is Saquon Barkley. I, like it's that was a criticism on Saquon yeah, Barkley when he which came is into fair. the NFL. Like the the double standard between how how people like I honestly just don't understand why people are like like when I watch Walker and when I, when I watch Etienne and when you see their stats like or when you watch them on film at least when I do. I see similar things. I see like Walker spends too much time behind the line of scrimmage, which causes him to get tackled behind the line of scrimmage. And other times he finds open lanes and he creates massive runs. ETN bounces everything outside too often in this sense. Or again, is it too often or is it not too often in the eye of the beholder? He bounces runs to the outside more often than they are designed to be. That means sometimes he creates 50 yard plays when other running backs would have created eight. And sometimes he takes a loss of two when he could have gotten five yards. Like that's just life with Travis Etienne. That's what he's going to do. And I guess what I would say is the positive is that Doug Peterson has shown with all of his actions so far that he's fine with that. Right. Like that's like, he said like, okay, Travis Etienne, what you showed me is like, you're so good that we just want to develop you. Like we're good with this. Like either he's saying we are so impressed with you as a talent that we want to continue to develop and refine the edges of your game by giving you a lot of opportunities or we actually like this about you and we want you to have all these carries right like they couldn't have showed more confidence in him they increased his role and they traded james robinson and yeah you've talked me into it i think yeah i think you've talked me into it like he should be valued ahead of jonathan taylor and he has an acl intact so he should probably be ranked even with Brees hall in a vacuum and probably ahead if you want to score points this year so i'm, yeah. I'm with you it's etn or mccaffrey yeah, like like I'm just looking at Travis Etienne's box score, and uh, he's got five consecutive games with over 100 yards. That's and, good. That's a lot of yards. And James Robinson's only been gone for two of those games, so that's pretty he's wild. Good. He's really good. Yeah, and, okay. and and like I said, I think the offense is probably trending in the right direction, or at least at least I have confidence that they're not going to put Sam Allinger in. Like, <laughs> no, like that. That's a pretty low bar but that's that's where we're at with the Colts right so, now so i think this is where we're at then i think in a vacuum like in terms of the most lowest common denominator most applicable to the most number of teams that dynasty rb1 overall non Bijan robinson category is travis Etienne, and if you are a contender then the running back that you should most want to have is christian mccaffrey yeah i think so i I can't believe we've gotten here. This isn't where I thought we were going at the start. I didn't think we were going to get here either. This thing. I was like, but that's hey, why, that's why I wanted to do it this way because I wanted to tease it out. I wanted to see yeah. how how would we get there. That's exciting. I had a so, method to my madness. Let's uh, let's go get some Travis Etienne, I guess. Uh, I already have a lot. He's already my most rostered dynasty running back. That's yeah. exciting. I roster a lot of the RB one overall. That's pretty good. Good for you. And and, and, and furthermore, and, I guess. Hey, hey, do you know who my second most roster dynasty running back is? I no, hope to be Caffrey. Yeah. So to, to qualifier. This is with a top one hundred eighty p. Like by most yeah. of the roster dynasty running backs, like Jerick McKinnon or whatever, like people that are free off waivers. Like most roster dynasty running backs, top one hundred eighty p. 
Travis Etienne, my second most, is Christian McCaffrey. Good for you. Dude. Look at that. You're doing a great job. Look at that. We're doing good things. I have no idea who my most rostered running backs are, and uh, it's almost certainly not Travis Etienne because I wasn't picking him last year. or Yeah, last year, two years ago. Uh, very often because I was pretty much... I think you called him Ronald Jones. Uh, he had a Ronald Jonesy this is, this feel. Is, would you say this is your last chance to buy low on Travis Etienne? <laughs> well, here's the difference. Ronald Jones was a shitty prospect, and Travis Etienne was a good prospect, but he was like weirdly similar to Ronald Jones in a lot of like kind of alarming ways. And that this was like pre combine, right? Like when we thought that Travis Etienne was this blazing speedster that was like 200 pounds, that was what we thought Ronald Jones was going to be, and they didn't catch passes, except. Travis Etienne actually did catch passes. He just – nobody liked the way that he caught passes, similar to how they didn't <laughs> like true. Ronald Jones got passes. That's true. He did catch it, it, it was not a uh, – like, let's let's not get carried away with Ronald Jones equals Travis Right, Etienne. no, he caught a lot of passes. That's just that he was potentially fearful. He, he had to turn to analytics to catch passes because he was yeah. fearful. He was afraid of catching passes. Right, he so he turned, he turned to analytics. It's a good thing he didn't go yeah. to the Colts. Jim Mercer wouldn't want him. He's fearful. Yeah. Anyways, I, I think that uh, it's pretty exciting that Travis Etienne is now the dynasty running back RB1. Uh, I double good. counted the RB there, and that's that's fine. And uh, yeah, like so who are you taking? Like in a, in a startup draft, you're on the clock. Who are you taking? Christian McCaffrey or Travis Etienne? I kind of think I might be taking Etienne. Well, I'm taking a quarterback or a tight end or a wide receiver. No, no, this back. is in like round two. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm taking a quarterback, wide receiver, or tight end, or I'm no, no, this is like round three. So I'm taking a quarterback or wide this receiver. Is round seven. Okay, I'm taking Travis Etienne. You're taking Travis Etienne over Christian McCaffrey in the start draft. So in, in a startup, I think sure, I am too. I, in a startup for sure, because you know what? So I did, I did some Christian McCaffrey startups this year where I took him in round two, and I mean those teams are doing well. Like Christian McCaffrey's awesome. I, I don't love taking a prime age running back early in a startup based on how it forces you to draft the rest of your startup. I was going to say, I feel like there's just so much less flexibility in the remainder of your strategy yeah. if you take Christian McCaffrey than if you just take Travis Etienne. So I'd probably just take Etienne's to remain right. flexible and take yeah. advantage of where players are falling in the draft. Yeah, like it's just, you're, you're so stuck because all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you just, you have to construct your team in a certain way if a like top, top end running back is like one of your most invested in players, right? It just makes it difficult. Like I would rather, I would always rather trade for Christian McCaffrey like later and when it's like, I already know what my team is. I know how it's set up. I, I know, like I'd rather trade for a Christian McCaffrey, but I'd rather draft a Travis Etienne. Yeah, Travis Etienne. Yeah, I, I think in a startup draft, it's pretty hands down Travis Etienne because if you draft Travis Etienne, you have the ability to win now or to like, still do like a productive struggle. Right. You draft Christian McCaffrey, you're you're in win now mode and there's no other alternative. And then you're just you have so much less ability to maneuver in the draft because if you miss out on the quality veterans, you're basically you got Christian McCaffrey and you're and you're just in a world of hurt now. Now everybody knows you can't win because you didn't get the right veterans and you have to sell this player at a discount. And that sucks. So just draft Travis Etienne, he's the running back one in Dynasty, you're welcome, everyone. You're welcome. Yeah. That's the show. Well, we were going to talk about Fields, but it's been two hours, so it's not going to happen yeah. anymore. Yeah. Sorry, Matt. If you Again, put it in fast forward, and you're going to be great. It's going to be yeah. great. So I think that's the end of the show. Is that good? Show. 
Yeah, so I'm not going to be here next week. So I will uh, see you guys in two weeks. Jacob may or may not be back next week, either solo. He might be with a friend. Right. It's hard to know. He might be YOF, bring your own friend. We, we will find out later. And until then, this is Sweat and Bullets, a fantasy football podcast. We are happy to have you and look forward to seeing you again next time. Yeah.